evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about the art of the brainstorm, and that is turning a premise into a full-fledged idea. Um, one of the things I like to determine, a long time ago, I read an um, article based on a book by Christopher Booker talking about the seven basic plots, and they are, for your information, Overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, The Quest, The Voyage and the Return, Comedy, Tragedy, and Rebirth. And then one of the things I noticed about this list when I was when I first read it was that a lot of times the basic plot that you're looking at depends on the character that you're looking at it, like the like the POV that you're using. Because if you look at the Hobbit, um, the Hobbit is told it um, is told from Bilbo Baggins' point of view, and which makes it a voyage and a return. But if you look at it from a different perspective the basic plot changes. Um, for most of the members of the company, it's a quest. For the line of Durin, it's a tragedy. For Bard, it's overcoming a monster. So one of the things I do when I'm getting ready to start, when I have my basic question that I'm going to ask myself, that's where I get my, that's my premise. So it's usually a question. I ask myself, okay, what kind of story am I telling? And that um, is is really helpful. Just getting that thrust of my idea out of the way. How am I going to get there? What am I going to do? Um, all comes into play in the brainstorming. So, but that article has kind of resonated in the back of my mind for years. Um, it was very formative. Uh, so, yeah. And most of my stories, um, most, not all, but most are overcoming the monster. Especially in fandom. Yeah, there's usually like the strong, uh, you know, adversary or, you know, Yeah. And that monster can be, you know, an external or an internal motivator. And don't take monster too literally. Because people sometimes think that, you know, if there's no no clear-cut villain, that it's not overcoming the monster. But um, there doesn't have to be someone who's actually, like, you know, killing and eating people for there to be... Um... <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I, I sometimes start with a question. Sometimes my premise is a question and sometimes my premise is kind of like more of a general story type. Um, like I want to write a Severus Snape redemption arc, you know? Um, and then I start thinking about, well, what does that look like? You know, what kind of, what kind of, um, what kind of story is it that I want to tell? Do I want to... Um, do a redo where he gets a chance to redo and fix a lot of stuff. Do I want to um, have like a cat, somebody enter his life at a young age that, you know, puts him on a different path and, and it's and it's sort of very indirect redemption arc because he doesn't have any memories of those, you know, those terrible things will never occur. So it's more redemption for the reader than redemption for the character. Um, so whichever way you come up with your premise of like what, what, what what kind of what kind of lane are you going to get in? Are you know, 
from there, then you have a lot of questions to answer about how exactly you're going to go about that story. And sometimes um, it can get, you can get very wrapped around the axle in your own head. Um, sometimes you don't, sometimes, sometimes solo brainstorming, you sit down and you come up with like, you just kind of go, go hog wild and like all the ideas are, are going, they're sparking, going crazy. And sometimes it gets to be too much. You've got too many ideas. Um, and it's important, I think, when you're brainstorming, whether you're brainstorming by yourself or whether you're stepping outside to talk to somebody else and say, okay, I need some help brainstorming. Um, and we well, there's, we probably just need to talk about brainstorming by yourself, like brainstorming on your own versus brainstorming with a with other person versus brainstorming in a group, because they're all very different. And you kind of have to kind of approach them a little bit differently, wouldn't you say? Especially the group group brainstorming um in a group brainstorming situation if you're asking other writers to participate um in helping you kind of flesh out your your premise you need to um come into it with a hearty sense of self and a goal because otherwise um whether they intend to or not um you will be influenced in a way that you might not be comfortable with later but then you will have plotted yourself into this hole and you won't know how to get out and then there will be all these expectations in your brain about how this should go so i don't approach a um brainstorming session with anyone until i have some basics down for myself so that i don't get um thrown off a cliff metaphorically when it comes to um, my idea that makes sense. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you don't have a really clear idea of what kind of story you want to tell, you could start off, or even if you sometimes, actually, I've had this happen, where you do have a very clear idea of what kind of story you want to tell. And by the end of your brainstorming session, there's a completely different story. So you have to be able to kind of hold really firm on what it is you want to do. Because especially the, and the more people in the group, sometimes the the further you can drift away because everybody's throwing their ideas in. And one of the things that can happen, and this would be my advice for people who are helping somebody brainstorm is you can't go into a brainstorm for somebody else attached to your ideas, because if they don't like it or it's, you don't know what all they're thinking, right? Because it's impossible for a writer to convey every single aspect of their vision to you. You get bored before you got to the end of, you know, like 10 pages later, you're like, are we done yet? <laughs> are you done explaining what it is you're, you're thinking you might want to write? Um, and so you, somebody might throw something out there and the, the author kind of goes, well, it doesn't quite work with what I'm thinking. And this, and part of that just may mean that you don't know everything, right? You don't know all the characters that they want to bring in. You're just, you're just getting a, typically getting a small piece of what they're thinking. So you got to be prepared to set your ideas aside if it doesn't work for them and don't get butt hurt if it if it doesn't work. And I've seen that in group sessions or even sometimes just with just one or two people, whereas somebody gets very upset that their idea isn't being received well. Um, and I would say also to the author who's asking for brainstorming help, you have to be gracious about saying that doesn't work, you know. Um, because if you just like shoot people down in a very negative way, they're not going to want to help you. They're not going to want to give you their creative 
mental energy if you're a dick about saying that doesn't work for me. So I usually say something like, well, that doesn't quite resonate with what I'm thinking or that doesn't really gel with the way I'm visualizing the character or whatever. And just kind of let it be about my vision rather than saying that they had a bad idea. So I'm just saying, be nice. People aren't going to want to work with you if you're being a dick. Um, another, thing, other thing about group brainstorming. Um, this has been my, almost without exception, this has been my experience with group brainstorming. They go ridiculous quickly. And when it goes ridiculous, don't be afraid to just say, okay, thanks, thanks for your help and step away. Because what it will start, what it will sometimes start to feel like is that people are not even trying to be respectful of, of, of the help that you need. They're just one-upping each other with jokes. Um, and there was a point in my process where I took that really personally, that I was like, why is every time I ask for help, everybody just starts making jokes and start they start trying to one-up each other with humor and I'm like does it seem like I'm writing humor over here um and it's like the ideas aren't even intended to be taken seriously so I'm very cautious anymore in in the later years of my life here I'm very cautious about asking for help outside of the one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two maybe one-on-three kind of situation because people will not take it seriously after a point it goes bug shit crazy. I've every never, single time. Every single time. It eventually goes cracktastic. And I would say if you're if you're going to go to a big group and ask for help, expect it to go that way eventually. It may take a while, right? It may you, you may get a little bit more out of people than I do. Um No, not like that at all. But um anyway, so just be prepared when you're going into that kind of situation to step out when it's starting. You're starting. If you're starting to get irritated, it's time to step away. And and you're not going to be able to rein a group of people in. You know, if there's ten people in a room, you're not going to be able to rein ten people in and get them to to be serious. You know, go go PM the privately talk to the one person who was helpful <laughs> or something. <you> right. Know. <laughs> it's like whatever, assholes. I'm done. Yeah, but I mean. <laughs> If it stops working for you, because the thing is, you don't want to get yourself frustrated to the point that you're not making progress or that you become disenchanted with your own idea. And these are things that all have happened to me. This is just my experience talking where I've had, you know, been like trying to work out a problem and I can't get, you know, I made the mistake of going to a group with it, <laughs> writing group, and it just goes crazy. It just goes absolutely bonkers. I learned really young, actually, not to trust my process with a large group of people. Um, and I think this actually, when I when I came into fandom, it kind of bled into the idea that um, my readers don't get a say in my process. Mm -hmm. uh, because, no, absolutely not. Most of them aren't qualified, number one, um, to give you valuable write, advice as a writer because they're not writers. And two, they don't know your story in your head. It, they don't have it in their head. So how in the hell could they possibly give you solid advice? 
on 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 your characterization or where your story is going to go next. It's also a good reason not to publish outside of say rough trade works in progress because you always have that one asshole reader who 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 is really firm in their opinions. And honestly, this has happened a little bit um, during rough trade this time for me, where I've had people who um, have made really obscure assumptions about where my story is going and what they expect to see, and like. There have been times where I was like, I wish you all would just shut up because that's not what's going to happen at all. And I want to replot my whole story and everything and everything will get caught on fire and rocks are going to fall and everybody dies because it's like. "Mm." Yeah, well, there's this thing with the expect to see. It's not so much even a demand. It's just they're so sure they know where the story is going that they'll say something like. I can't wait to see so-and-so get what they deserve. You're like, or I can't wait till we find out how long so-and-so has been, you know, lying to everyone. And it's like, but what makes you think they're lying? (laughs) Where did you get that? And they say it with such certainty that it's obvious that they've inferred this as if it's the logical conclusion from what's been written. And actually it's that level of certainty that I've I had that happen with the Leo Motos people's level of certainty around the story. I'm like, that's not what's happening. <laughs> Where are they getting this from? And I was just so like, what the fuck? And it's really disconcerting because it makes you want to go back and read and go, did I actually imply that somewhere? Have I foreshadowed that? No, I did not foreshadow that. They're just, and what that is, is they are projecting their wishes, what they want to see onto your story and seeing it there. And you can't control that, right? But it can get really frustrating. Yeah, it's some it's some projects it doesn't bother you. It's like you just kind of laugh when they really take it the wrong way. Um, and some projects it just really is kind of like sometimes it's because maybe it's because there's been more than one misunderstanding in the story, or it's like this they're just a bunch of people that's doing this, they're just repeatedly misunderstanding. It's like are they feeding on each other? I mean, I don't even know. Um I've also noticed that this is like not something that's particularly like fresh in the moment happening, but I've noticed that when I give characters really complicated, nuanced emotions about situations, that people jump to conclusions, ignore the nuance, and like they strip my character down to a single motivation. It. <clears throat> It's like, I put a lot of fucking effort into that. <laughs> that motherfucker is four-dimensional. Why do you keep stripping him down to this one thing? Yeah. Why? Why? Fuck you, why? <laughs> but, back to brainstorming. So, um know what kind of brainstorming works on that so like for me like i can go into a group with a group brainstorming like let's maybe try to close loop on group group brainstorming when I, I can go into a group and maybe work out one thing i've learned long ago not to go to a group with a whole story that i need to work out because it just never in my entire life has it ever worked and i have i have been frustrated out of writing whole stories because of the group dynamic and it is because of this crazy thing that eventually takes over the group where I, I don't I don't even understand. I don't even understand. And the funny thing is I have as the as the brainstorming partner as opposed to the person who's trying to flesh out their idea, I have more than once taken somebody, you know, 
private message somebody in a in a that was that's getting I could is asking for help in a group chat and said, "Do you want to go talk privately?" Because I felt like it was me and the person asking for help. Because I will never, if an author asks for help, I will always take it seriously until I see the author isn't taking it seriously. Um, but so I learned a long time ago, way back in my fandom life, to not rely on the group for helping me brainstorm an idea, especially where there's a lot of unknowns or where I need to work out a lot of intricacies in the plot. Um, the group dynamic just doesn't work. So you may have had, um, okay, I'm, I'm, got really, I'm sorry, I got really confused by something. Oh, um, okay, sorry. You may have um, had good success with, with a group dynamic, and it may be because you know everybody in the group. And that could, if that works for you, just that's wonderful. But just be aware that it may not be an idea, a, a dynamic that works well for you. So we do occasionally have some like group brainstorming sessions that happen like over on the Just Right server. Um, if that dynamic is working out for you, feel free to embrace it. Um, feel free to embrace that dynamic and go for it. But if just protect your own headspace and and be be willing to step out when it's not working for you. Um, somebody asked, "Is would you say the more you need help with, the smaller the number of people you should ask for help from?" Uh, may, may, probably to maybe. the The issue becoming is sometimes like your normal bounce partner may not be someone who's good with the things you're weak in, and if you're needing a lot of help, you might need to go further afield and it might be that sometimes two or three people kind of rounds out your your circle um i think it, i think it depends upon the nature of the the people you're bouncing with i generally bounce best with one other person that's that's i find the most productive for me when i'm working out a bunch of stuff but i have had you know a group of 3 be productive as well what were you going to say? Oh, that I think it's important to be selective and to know what you need from the part from the, the situation. Like, do you need characterization help? Do you need plot help? Do you need help with your ripples? Because knowing these things going into the conversation, um, number one, you can pick the best person for the job. Um, and number two, um, you can um, kind of shape the conversation about what you need and being able to shape that conversation, whether it's one person or two people or three, um, I would never go more than three to be honest, um, is, is, is very valuable. Often any, really anytime when you're doing some kind of trouble management or you're trying to figure out a situation and make it work for you, whether it be um, in a creative space or whether just like in your regular everyday life, being able to shape the conversation about what you need um, out of it is like a, is a really good skill to develop. Mm -hmm. And also when it comes to fandom, knowing the, you know, in coming into a group of people who know the fandom that you, you need help with is really important. Um, you wouldn't come to me for help on Naruto because I don't even know how to spell it, say it, much less actually help you with the content. 
Right. Especially if you need canon. I mean, the thing is, I mean, we've, I think we've had this even on a podcast where Kira's helped somebody with ripples based upon plot that doesn't have anything to do with the fan, with the fandom. So if you can, you can get help from somebody who doesn't know your fandom, if you can decouple what you need help with from the fandom itself, if you can't, you're going to need somebody. Um, yeah. In the shifts verse, conversation that Julie and I had, I had zero little to no fandom knowledge of Team Wolf outside of what I read in fan fiction. <laughs> but I think I did okay. <laughs> you did great. But I think that if you need help with the canon of a show, um, you definitely need somebody who's very um, very knowledgeable, not just of canon, but of fanon, so they can tell the difference between canon and fanon. Right. Like, I, I've i read all the Harry Potter books. I have read, I've seen all the movies. And I have um, read a ton of fan, fan fiction. And the problem is, is that it's been a long time for everything except the fan fiction. So if somebody asks for my help with something Harry Potter-ish... I need to let them know up front that me keeping the movie verse, the book verse and the, and my fan and, and you know, my head cannons unconflated is not going to happen. It's just one big mess in my brain. Right. So, but I've helped people plot things in fandoms. I don't know as long as the, as long as what they need help with isn't canon specific. So it's important now. see one of the things I often struggle with um, when I've been like brainstorming an idea is too many ideas for a story. There's too much and it's just unfocused. It's kind of all over the place. I've got more ideas than I can use. I've got extraneous elements and there's actually only a couple of people that I can go to, to talk to about that with because, and it's not because it's not because most of the people I've ever bounced with before aren't good at being bounce partners. It's because they're not good at reining me in. And it's just something I've learned, right? Is that they tend to want to more enable me to my to my bad behavior of having, you know. She's talking to most of y'all right now. I mean, I'm because honestly, you, yeah. practically all of my readers are enablers. They'll be like, oh, Kira, it's fine. Write 200K. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to do. Why can't you support my goals? <laughs> I had goals and none of you were supporting me. <laughs> I mean, the last time I did this, I went to somebody with like a bunch of ideas, a ton of stuff, right? It's like, I'm like, I got this and I got this and I worked out this and I had all of this stuff. And they go, well, I think all of that's fascinating. You should use it all. I'm like, oh, no, that's terrible story craft. I can't use it all. <laughs> the story would never end. Um, I'm like, and, and they just didn't see the problem, right? No, it is not incorrect. <laughs> I know you mean that jokingly, but it's actually not encouraging somebody beyond their, to go beyond their limits. It's encouraging them to write. It's, it's encouraging them to bad craft is what it is. So, and that's often what that is. I know it's a joke, but I'm just saying that people say stuff like that and you know it's a joke, but somebody might not, might read that and think that it's serious, right? That when you just, that you're trying to encourage somebody to, to push their boundaries by doing all this crazy shit. And, and that actually isn't what you're doing. So there's like a very tiny list of people, and by tiny I mean two, um, that I can go to when when I've got more idea and said, how do I help me streamline this and take? Because the thing is, when you 
when you've created something, it's shiny and precious to you, right? And you come up with this idea and you really like this piece of world building, but it feels like it's just extraneous if you don't do something with it. But a whole subplot about that, it, it, do you need it? It's going to add 20,000 words. And, <laughs> you know, you feel like the story is already 120. So um, it can get overwhelming, right? And then when you go to somebody, you say, help me kind of rein this in and kind of like focus this idea. And they come back to you with, oh, no, you should use it all. It actually is super frustrating. Frustrating. Um, and um, honestly, it's like it speaks to a lack of trust. It's like you're saying, OK, this is too much and I need you to help me pare it down. And they're like saying they're like gaslighting. You say, oh, no, it's not too much. Right at all. I already told you it was too much. <laughs> Why don't you believe me? Greed. Greed. Right. And the thing is, people... Um, I read something recently where, actually, the element I picked up the story for, the thing, I was, the thing that I was like, oh, you know, and I pick it up to read it, was completely extraneous to the story. I mean, you could have taken it all out, every little bit that related to that, and it wouldn't have changed the actual story at all. So... And that's what I never actually want is just because somebody finds an element in a story fascinating or they go, Ooh, that's really curious. That's really interesting. I would, I would not, if, if, if you could just cut it out completely and it doesn't change the general direction of the story. Well, what was the point of it? And I honestly find that kind of thing when I read it in other people's work, I find it more frustrating than I find it to be curious because people think, People say, they'll say up front, oh, you should use it. It's fascinating. But then what they don't realize is then what's going to happen is it's underutilized in the story. And people are going to comment on it. Oh, I wish you'd done more with this. It just feels like it's kind of left hanging there. And there was you just never really realized the potential of this thing that you put all this effort into. You're right. It wasn't. <laughs> because it was crap and it didn't need to be there. So people will say, oh, you should put it all in. But in the at the in the end game in the execution uh, people will read it and they'll go oh this was really never really realized or they'll say the dreaded it'll be great when this story is finished it's like hmm and the, the thing is they might have a legitimate reason for thinking that why because you didn't finish it because you put all of this stuff in that could be read as foreshadowing or whatever concepts that could be that feel like they should be explored that you don't explore so i know that i can do that pretty easily as come up with more concepts than I can realistically use in a story. And when you talk to somebody and you say, okay, I need some help. And they tell you, oh no, it's all great. Use it all. Believe me, my unimpressed face is like etched at that moment. So it is really important to know what kind of help you need. Do you have a hard time seeing the consequences of the decisions that you've made? You need somebody who's good with that kind of thing. Not somebody who just nods at you and goes, yeah, yep. That sounds good. Which makes you want to go, well, you know what, like, seriously, fuck you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not what I need. Let's talk about the elements of brainstorming. For me, after I have my, um, my, my general idea, and I've asked myself a series of questions to kind of figure out where I am and where I need to go. Um, my next step is to figure out um, whom you know what characters are necessary 
to my story. Um, especially, and this is really easy to do in fandom. It can be more difficult um, in original work. Uh, in, you know, in, in fandom, you're, you're going into something like all, like all the world. Okay, I knew I needed my main character, which was going to be Ragnog. I knew, I knew I needed his wife and his son. Um, I made the decision to only include his son and not to include his other children that are in Small Magic because those children actually don't physically appear in the narrative of Small Magic. And I thought, well, I'll just not, I don't want to worry about that. There'll be only the one. So why is there only one child in this particular verse? So I figured that out too. And I was like, okay, now I need Harry and Hermione. Um, what supporting characters do I need? Do I want to pick them up from fandom or do I want to use my original characters? Most often or not when it comes to Harry Potter. If I'm going to be doing a role that's not traditionally something this character did in canon, in, in canon I'm going to do my, I'm going to use my OC because I don't want to stick a canon character in an original role um, in the story because I can't because it's, it's, it's canon divergent. So I can't put anything in the story that could be contradicted in canon. So after like, okay, you're putting together your character list. And this is honestly really a process that I, that I, that I approach from a plotter point of view because I'm a plotter. I don't know what brainstorming pantsers would do. Especially those crazy ass panthers who apparently sit down to a blank page with no idea what they're going to write, who they're going to write about, what fandom they're going to be in, what the day is, what the year is. They're just like in this void. <laughs> she might have feelings about this. <laughs> I don't understand your void. Well, it's true because when you, I've sat down with panthers to like plot their story it's like okay what kind of story do you want to tell i don't know i don't know now see lady holder isn't that bad i mean you guys have seen lady holder not seen you've heard lady holder on um on the podcast actually you know throw out a whole plot so she's perfectly capable of doing it she just doesn't <laughs> now i've i've plotted a story and gone and replotted it so you just never know what what's going to actually happen when you get there but Lady Holder, sometimes she goes into the story basically not knowing what she's going to sit down and write. But I would say more often than not, especially since she does rough trade, she has some idea. At least yeah, someone told me that my sign-up process was um, for rough trade was unfair to pantsers who, um, who can't plan that far ahead. And I'm like, you know what? There are a lot of pantsers on rough trade who pants their ass off three times a year for me so don't don't give me that shit right because they actually said that they felt that having to declare their fandom two weeks and two weeks in advance was stifling yeah i'm like okay um because that's really i mean because honestly we've only done one challenge where you were held to the plot one and it was because and that was actually a plotting challenge we actually right. asked you to plot at least in a three arc structure, right? So, and you had to put your three arc structure up in your project file. It was one time. The rest of the time, honestly, as long as you stick to your, at least, at least the fandom that you declared is at least a feature in your story. That's all you're required to stick to. You know, and the title, that's all you're stuck with. It, I mean, on day one, you can edit your project file. Mm-hmm. So if you need to change your summary or your pairing, you can do it. You just can't change your fandom or your title. So I don't understand how that's stifling at all. Trifling right. ass. 
So if you, like, let's say that you signed up with NCIS and you decide you wanted to write a Stargate Atlanta story, well, you just better have somebody from NCIS show up. I mean, <laughs> you write yourself a fucking agent far afloat <laughs> and move on. <laughs> but don't use that title. <laughs> um, I think that title's been used a lot in the fandom, so yeah, <laughs> pick something new. Um, yeah. Do you see what Dark said? She said, uh, anyone over the age of 21 who says something isn't fair needs a nap at a timeout. <laughs> I was also told my, my mulligan challenge was unfair, but so. Yeah. Whatever. How dare I have a challenge for challenge participants? The thing is, but the not every challenge is going to work for every person. Right? It's like people say that, you know, that they really want to... Yeah, I imagine there are people who won't be involved, who are regularly involved in Rough Trade, um, won't be involved at all next year. Right, because they don't write the Sentinel. They don't want to. And they don't want to. And that is perfectly okay. But since I announced these challenges some time ago, I don't expect and will not tolerate any grief about it next year. The window on which I would entertain complaints has 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 closed. <laughs> if you and if you really want to do something else, sign up for the, you should have signed up for the quantum bang. Shut your butthole. Um. But anyway, um. So brainstorming. So you said you got up to your things. You sit down. You know you about your character. You work on your characters. Um, so I got a basic idea. I've got a basic character list. I'm not saying I have every um, character I'm going to need, but I need to know my main characters um, and any major secondary characters so I can make sure my profiles are up to date for what I'm going to be doing in this story. Um, so, so after the character list, I do a character profile. But part of my basic idea brainstorming will be my little cloud plot that, I sh that I've showed you guys in the past, where I list my themes and um, my characters and um, all that stuff. You know, I've shown you. There are pictures in the link library of me doing that live on air once. Um, but it that's really important for my process, just to kind of get that... To see those connections between my characters and various themes. Um, themes like justice, revenge, um, love, hate, you know, just, you know, and you, and you need to know who your main character going into your story. I need, I need to know who my main character loves and hates and wants and wants to kill. You know, all these things are important. <laughs> and sometimes they can be the same person. It just depends, you know, <laughs> on the character. <laughs> it can be complicated as fuck, y'all. But so, yeah, you need to know. I need to know my character profiles. And then I will, I will sit down and I'll ask myself, where is my main character when my story starts? And then I will ask myself, where do I want my character to end? Where is his end? And everything in between is the journey. So, and that's my basis of my brainstorm. And after I've accomplished all of this, I sit down to zero draft. 
So I can spend sometimes a little, as little as three or four hours brainstorming and sometimes as, as, as much as a week kind of noodling it and, you know, in, in the back of my mind before I sit down to zero draft. And then once I zero draft, I'm, I'm ready to write. So I think I brainstormed and zero drafted um, all the world in about a week. And, and my zero draft is, mm, I have to open it up to tell you the actual word count on it. I have a gaming mouse that has a, has a trigger on it that increases the, the jerk rate or the movement rate of my mouse. I hit it way too often. My mouse would be darting around my monitor like crazy. Now, in the zero draft, you know, one of the things that is really beneficial when, when I'm zero drafting, um, my zero draft for all the world is 5K, basically. It's 5,190 words. Um, that is basically a plot document. It's all my major plot points, of which there are about 70-ish. I've added about 15 plot points since I started, um, but I've also removed about 10. So we're, you know, we're, we're about equal. Now, we've... We've talked, I think I've mentioned before about, to me, what makes the difference between Kira's being a plot document or an outline versus a zero draft. The difference for her, in my opinion, is that she doesn't just give plot points. Is She's also dealing with, she also bring, folds in GMC. She folds in emotional context. Um, she folds in what she's trying to get out of a particular plot point. And that depth in her in that plot document, to me, separates it into almost the zero draft state, which is why I think of what she does is more zero drafting than just writing an outline. Because my outline, if, if my outline for um, all the world would have probably been a thousand words, maybe, if I took out all the GMC. Um, and part of what you, what I do is when I'm compiling my character list during my brainstorm is I'm looking at external and internal motivators. Um, what is standing in my character's way? Uh, what does he need? What does he want? GMC stands for goals, motivation, and conflict. This is the foundation for your character and it is the foundation for your plot. If you don't know your character's goals, their motivations, and their conflicts, you're SOL. When you look, when you look at motivation, like Ragnarok's motivation could not be more clear. He is standing on the precipice of his species being destroyed because of the actions of someone he can't get his hands on. Because they're already dead. Um, speaking of Radnock, someone shared a beautiful picture of Jack on um, Facebook. I'm going to put it in the chat room for you guys. Ooh. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, yes, thank you very much. Um, but Ragnarok, he's 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 angry and he's a little bitter and he has made mistakes and he wants to fix them and um but that anger simmers in him and and also he's dealing with a lot of anger for what his wife was forced to witness in her visions. Um, her, you know, his wife saw the destruction of their species and that's, you know, that's traumatic and, and terrible and vicious. And he has that kind of, that anger kind of burning in his gut as they're trying to decide what they're going to do. Um, and then he also, you know, when they're getting ready to do this ritual, uh, 
He can't even look at her when she does it. He can't even look at her when she puts that knife in her chest because he can't see it. He can't. He can't see it. And so when they wake up, the first thing he does is, you know, reaffirm their life. <laughs> you know, as one does <laughs> with his dick because he's a man. <laughs> but his motivations are really, really, really clear. He has to prevent the destruction or the of the of the horcruxes inappropriately and see and the only way to accomplish that is to see that that harry potter meets his fate and so he has to set aside a lot of ambition and a lot of um pride and anger and bitterness um he has to set all that aside to accomplish this goal so his motivation um, protect his wife, protect his son, protect his species. And that motivation shapes everything he does from the moment they make the decision to go through the time travel ritual. So look at a character like Elizabeth Weir and her motivation. Once you determine what her motivation is, it's up to you to shape it and chisel it down. Because in canon, she's a hot mess. So you need to take her as, and take her as a character and fill out your character profile and look at her conflicts and her motivation. What are her conflicts? She is in conflict with herself. She wrangles for control with Shepard. Um, also did it with Sumner. She uh, sets aside emotional attachment with startling, horrifying ease. She, you know, and honestly, um, at their core, while the, the, the Elizabeth where we met in SG1 and the Elizabeth where we met in SGA are different at their core. They're very similar in that they're both mercenary as fuck. Um, so if I was like, when I, when I look at Elizabeth, I approach her depending on what I need her for in my story. Um, if I need her to be of a more of a more neutral influence and someone who who kind of shapes things in the background so that John can do his thing and he doesn't have to worry about the leadership of the city, then she's neutral. She's focused. She has some personal issues and some demons, but she's not going to get in the way. Um, if she's an adversary, um, her main goal um, is ascension, and finding that enlightenment is her is. Um, so, so everything she does is, is motivated by that. And so I guess what I'm saying is that when you're writing her, it's up to you to shape her motivations and shave them down so that she's not a hot mess. So you need to pick the Elizabeth that you need in your story and chisel off all the crap that Cannon put on her. But the Elizabeth where we meet in SG-1 is mercenary and she's so she's such a political animal that she sectioned off parts of the galaxy that the gold were had permission to keep slaves in that's hardcore and so you know at her um at her root elizabeth weir is 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 a politician and um you can do with that what best fits your story but what it boils down to what you need to do as a writer that that was not accomplished in the show is consistency. 
You make your careful, considered choices about her character before you start. And then you are consistent throughout your story. Just that's the only thing you can do. Right. If people talk about they have a hard time with characterization or whatever, one of the reasons why I think some people have a hard time with getting the characterization down is because they don't stop and think about what the core of their character is before they start to write them. And this is not a plotter versus a pantser. I don't care if you're pantsing or plotting. If you don't understand the character you're writing, I don't know what you're doing. Because if you don't have a vision for a character before you start to write, you're never going to be able to make them internally consistent. I'm not talking about pantsing the details of their life. Like, you know, were they born in, you know, Iowa or, or Texas? I'm not talking about that kind of thing, although it helps to know that kind of thing too. But to understand what drives your character, you know, what shapes them, what, what, what they're like, what their, what their psychological makeup is. And sometimes why, you know, did they have a bad relationship with their parents? Did they have a good one? That kind of thing, things that happen in your formative years really affect you and not knowing that about your character going in. It's bad juju. I don't, I don't know how you get there, y'all. That's okay. But I do think that if you don't do the character work that eventually, um, that even like like in the process of writing, if you don't keep your character consistent, um, your reader will start to distrust the character, and they might not even know why. If you watched um, Stargate Atlantis, there came a point where you, as a viewer, started to see Elizabeth Weir as a problem. She was erratic. She made irrational decisions very bad and it was difficult to relate to her and that was because of inconsistent writing and I think that a lot that also is something that happened with NCIS with the character of Tony Dinozo was inconsistent writing one writer would show him um, being very competent um, on his game still having a sense of humor and then, and then the next writer would turn him into the butt of the joke and that lack of consistency was horrific. And that might boil down to a lack of a series Bible. And we we joke about NCIS not following their series Bible. I question as to whether or not they ever actually had one. I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess no. And then you also have to have some consistency in between your primary and your secondary characters you need to have it when you lack internal consistency about your secondary characters people notice and harry potter is a huge example of this it's like we're supposed to believe that these are some of these these witches and wizards are well-meaning good-hearted people and yet the implication actually would be that they're all a bunch of apathetic assholes who don't really care about anybody but their own comfort but in any case um in any case, that when you look at, for instance, one of the one of the I'm gonna give you an example you see a lot in NCIS fandom is people talk, authors talk to, when they're trying to explain Tony's character to the reader in some fashion. They'll talk about that Tony, um, okay, uh, that Tony has like masks, right? Which is fine. You can use the masks front that he's a lot of people, and honestly, that it's not particularly a unique trait. A lot of people have a different persona at work than they have at home. It, there are people who are very introverted at home 
who actually have an outwardly extroverted persona at work. It's something they kind of put on. And then they sometimes they find that exhausting, right? They find work exhausting because they're putting on a different way of being in order to be successful in their professional life. Um, and it could be also the reverse to be true. You could be like too extroverted. You could be very bubbly and have a really weird, quirky sense of humor and it hasn't served you well professionally. And so you tone it down and you act professional at work. This is adult behavior. So, you know, somebody having a slightly different persona at work, not weird, but in any case, if you're trying to explain the inconsistencies in Tony's behavior, in canon through him having masks that he's put on and da 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 da, which is fine if you want to go that route. I don't have any problem with that. You can't then turn around and have Tony be irritated that people buy into his masks. It's ridiculous. Because <laughs> you establish, I see this over and over again. You establish that he's great at undercover work and you establish that he's wears masks, right? He puts masks on at work so people don't get to know the real him. And then he turns around and faults his coworkers because they bought into it. That's some next level bullshit, folks. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Plan your character with a little bit more consistency. If you want him, actually, I just don't see how you do that. If somebody puts on a persona at work, you don't get to fault, fault people for believing your persona. That's just, that's just crazy cakes. So it's hypocrisy. It is. Do it if you want to. I mean, sometimes you need a persona to succeed, right? Or to survive, one or the other. Some, maybe both. Um, sometimes you need to be different in order to get through work, right? And that's fine. But you don't get to fault people because they don't know the real you. Crazy. It just doesn't make any sense. And so that I see that a lot in NCIS works, that particular scenario. And it doesn't, it becomes an issue of characterization because you kind of head tilt and you go, what? So you're saying he's good at undercover and he's been putting on a persona the whole time he's been at work. And then yet he's angry at his coworkers because they bought his persona, which he is very invested in how good he is at putting it on. Okay. That's some next level... Yes, it is, a, it is a real life coping mechanism, right? But in real life, we don't fault our coworkers that they don't know the real us when we never act like the real us at work. <laughs> well, you don't know the real me. It's like, well, how could I possibly? I see you Monday through Friday from 8 to 5, and you always act like this. <laughs> could be why. So... It's just something to think about, you know, when you're working on your characterization and what that's going to look like. Um, and that is part of, like, there's character brainstorming, there's plot brainstorming, and there's how do all of this come together. So if you want to have internal conflict, um, and sometimes you got to reach beyond what you've maybe often seen in Fanon to justify or to explain the conflict that exists. Um I mean, lack of respect is a bigger issue in NCIS than Tony's masks, right? Respect for chain of the the chain of command, respect for authority, and which comes down to an unhealthy dynamic between Gibbs and his senior field agent. And that's not just Gibbs' fault, by the way. So, but that's that's part of working out your character and what what they're like and how you can write them. A way that is internally consistent, more so than the show did, or better than the show did, because 
you know, do better. <laughs> do better. Please. Do better than them. You can, especially with some shows, it's, it, the bar is low. So. You don't got to reach far. We had a question that asked me a question. When you've moved out past your canon, say post book seven in Harry Potter, how do you develop a conflict out of whole cloth? Do you have a strategy that you can share for coming up with a new villain or a conflict? Um, Let's brainstorm. Um, okay. I gotta get some paper. I brainstorm on paper. I have a new page. I have no idea where my notebook is, so I've got an envelope. Um, <laughs> so, the first thing I would ask myself if I wanted to do something post-series, which I probably would because I prefer them writing them post. If I were to write them, I'd prefer to write post-Hogwarts. So, maybe not always, but generally. Um, is I would want to know how much, am I looking for a completely, and I'll let you answer the question, Shadow, since this is your question. Would you want to develop a conflict, something that wasn't rooted in something from the past, or do you want something brand new? So, no, well, okay, no epilogue. That's, that's good detail. Like, do you want it to be something that is potentially built in the past that Harry didn't know about, or do you want it to be... Um, I've got an idea if you don't have an answer. Okay. All right. I'm going to throw this at you. I'll, I'll ask Kira a question, let her come up with the thing. We'll kind of go back and forth here. What if Harry um, turns 18, he gets out of Hogwarts, he goes to claim um, his account, whatever, more than his trust vault, because he's a grown-ass man now. And when he visits his ancestral vault for the first time, he finds something there. Something that could change the entire magical world. What if the Book of Souls is in his uh, is in his vault, his ancestral vault? One of them. One of them. If it's just sitting in a trunk, right? It's just, it's been locked away. What if, question would then be, why is it there? And his what great-grandfather was an unspeakable. Okay. Great-grandfather was an unspeakable. And during the war with Grindelwald, he hid the Book of Souls. Is in the second movie. Okay, so the Book of Souls is in is in a trunk in his vault. And his his uh his um great-grandfather hid it. And it was obviously not intended to be there forever. And what this does is it, of course, reveals magical soulmates. So what if, what if there's only one? Now, like in Slytherin Black, I wrote that there's multiple, um, like mag soul magic matching devices in the world. Yes, it's Phantom. <clears throat> Whether it's Book of Souls, Soul Orb, whatever. Yeah, it's definitely it's the whole concept of soulmates is completely Phantom. Um. So for the better part of a century, well, not more than half a century, um, this, this magical relic has been missing and nobody no knew where it was. And Harry's now got it. And so if this is going to be entrenched into something that has already happened, what if the minute he picks up 
the book. What if you can't use the Book of Souls, like you can't even touch it, if you're under the effect of a love potion? What if it burns it away? Boom. It's my headcanon that you can you that you can open the book, but you can only see your record, right? Because it because because otherwise the ripple is outrageous. Because what if a parent goes to the Book of Souls, opens it up for their kid, and see the name they don't like, and they go kill their kid's soulmate? Right. So it's my headcanon that even if the book had shown that Grindelwald and Dumbledore were soulmates, no one would know it but Grindelwald and Dumbledore. Right. Unless they advertised it. Okay. So this burns away the effect of a love potion. So he's sitting there in a vault, the book of souls in his lap. He's suddenly no longer under the effect of a, of a love potion. And he needs to decide what to do with the book of souls. And maybe he decides that the UK has been terrible, not only terrible custodians of him, but clearly historically have been bad custodians of the Book of Souls. So what if he takes it out of the, Europe? What if he takes it out of UK and he takes it to the ICW in, um, I usually have the ICW located in France, but what if they're, what if they're in the Hague? I usually put the world court in the Hague and I put um, the ICW in Rome. Um, I don't know why I picked Rome. I have no idea why. It was, it was a decision I made a very long time ago. <laughs> no, Rome works too. But so I he, think that if they have a court of magic, that it, that, that it would be in the Hague, that it would be the counterpart of the world court that we already have, you know, in reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he takes it to Rome. And he's got it in a, maybe in a dimensional store. And he asks to see, I don't know, someone. Um... Well, the question, how does, does he know? He Maybe he wouldn't know who to go to. Maybe just based upon the strength of his name, he's able to, he goes in and says, I need to speak with somebody about who's in charge of, there would have to be some branch of law that governed that kind of thing. Like the use of magical relics and. Um... You know, honestly, I think at that age, he would just walk up to the guard and say, hey, I'm Harry Potter and I need to speak to somebody in charge. And they'd be like, okay. You would just take a seat right over there, Harry Potter. <laughs> we'll go. go. And the next thing he knows, he would be in a um, um, in a room with the Supreme Mugwump. Whoever that would be. And if it was my story, it would be Hero Ido. Um, I'm not mad at that. <laughs> and he could be in your story too, Jilly. <laughs> Attribution is everything, though. Attribution is everything. Although, if I was going to steal one of your characters, it would totally be Armand Daring. <laughs> you may have him too. I'm, a, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, like abscond with Armand. Maybe marry him. I don't know. I'm having quite decided. <laughs> if I was going to marry a dude, it'd totally be that nasty old bastard. <laughs> well, he comes with a beautiful wife. I'm, so. I'm, down, I'm down for a threesome. Anyway, okay, so. This is his wife. I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so we've got um, so he goes in to let's say to Hiroito and he says, 
I was I was digging around in my ancestral vault, as you do, because I just turned 18. Um, and I just defeated Tom Riddle, you know, as you do. And I found this thing. And I'm not sure what I should do with it. And he pulls out the book of souls. <laughs> Is anybody missing this? <laughs> then what? Well, I think that if I don't think that the Potter ancestor probably see it's my headcanon that um Charles Potter is actually Harry's grandfather. Um and Doria Black is his grandmother. Yeah, that's mine too. Because those <sighs> Fleamont and Euphemia, no. No, no. I would say great grandfather and great grandmother. And then I would put my my two OCs, Christopher and I forget what I named his grandmother. But um that Charles that Doria Black is James Potter's grandmother, which makes James and Sirius cousins. But either way, whatever Potter you pick, I think that it would be it would have been done with authority. That is, it, this 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 wasn't something that he stole, um, and that he put it somewhere safe. He was instructed to put it somewhere safe, so he put it in a place that only a Potter could go. But then he was killed before he could reveal it. And so the ICW has always known that the Potter family had the Book of Souls. They just didn't know where it was because he hid it for its, for for safety. Whether you pick Grindelwald or whether you go back a couple hundred years and pick a different Potter ancestor. Um, you can even make it one of the, how you say it? Pever, Pever, Peverell? That's how I Peverell. say it. I don't know Peverell. how anybody else says it. Um, like maybe him. Ignatus. Ignotus. Um, either way, you know, just depending on how how far how long you want the live on the, um, the Book of Souls to have been missing, whether it's a hundred years or you know two hundred years, I would probably do it during the time of Grindelwald, which would make it Harry Potter's great grandfather. Um, maybe he was the head unspeakable, and he was tasked with protecting the Book of Souls because it was currently in the hands of the of the British Ministry of Magic. Maybe it had been moving around to different governments all over the planet. And it was just their turn. And when the Grindelwald threat got too immense, they became worried about the safety of the Book of Souls. Um, and they had Char your Char Charles Potter um, hide it. And he was killed. And so it's been lost ever since. Or maybe it wasn't lost. Maybe Harry's grandfather and Harry's father knew exactly where it was. but by But there was Tom Riddle. And so when Harry stumbles across it, he's not being given instructions by anybody to talk to, um, to, um, to keep it hidden. Maybe James knew. Um, but he was, he was told by his father when, when Voldemort is no longer a threat, you need to take this back to the ICW. But then James died and his dad died. And so then Harry doesn't know anything about it. And then Harry finds it in the books. In, in, no, but the question is, and the one you did skip, is that, okay, the Book of Souls burned out the love potion in Harry Potter, but then it would have opened, right? Yeah. And shown him who his soulmate was? Yeah. I mean, I would pick Hermione um, in, that, in this situation. Now, 
Um, I do ship Harry Draco more than I ship Harry Hermione, but I find it's uh, harder to get to Harry Draco post-war yeah. um, than it is. Uh, I would, if I were to ship, do a Harry Draco thing, I'd, I'd have to have something that was more pre-war um, or a time travel thing. So in this, in this scenario, I would, I would pick Hermione. It's the, because I feel like there's, you know, I'd look for my conflict elsewhere than in the getting over all the Death Eater stuff, personally. Yeah, I mean, he already has enough conflict going on. Um, I mean, I shipped them both, too. And I could, I mean, there are circumstances where I could actualize him as a triad right here. But um, I probably would pick the, the path of least resistance in his romantic life. Because everything else is about to go to shit. <laughs> right, but also because, for me, it's also because I think he already trusts Hermione, and I don't think he has that trust with Draco, and so mm-hmm. he's gonna, he's gonna, he's in a situation, if you're doing a love potion thing, where he's already gonna be being, feeling betrayed by people close to him. Um, I mean, if I wanted to go the slash route, and I was really, like, like married to that, I'd probably have it be somebody, like, a little bit kind of out there who's very distant from him, like Charlie Weasley or something, somebody he hasn't interacted with hardly at all. Um, but I think that because of the, it still winds up being a, a difficult scenario because of, I think that when he's dealing with this sense of betrayal already, it helps him in terms of an internal motivator to give him somebody that he already trusts as his soulmate, rather than putting trust, trust obstacles. I wouldn't pick a Weasley at all because, um, It'd After be rough, being love be potion to be in a relationship with Jenny, does he really deserve to have Molly Weasley as a mother-in-law? No, but it's it. It also <laughs> beyond Harry, it's a difficult position for the romantic partner because even if Charlie like wrote off most of his family, it's that's a lot of angst you're bringing in for Charlie that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, it's harsh as fuck. So you could do. I mean, there's there's options. It could be. I mean, you could. You know, and uh, and we don't need to overlook the fact that puberty slapped Neville Le- um um Neville Longbottom around. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, you that could totally, would be sweet. <laughs> yeah, you could do Oliver if you want to slash. It could be Oliver. I mean, I'm more of a slash writer, so so I recognize people are more in that lane. So you could do Oliver Wood. It could be, um, it could be Neville. I just think the setup to me feels like that. I, to me, the natural, the choice to me would be her Hermione. I mean, I probably would pick Hermione too. But um, if you wanted to do a very devastating, um, gut wrenching, fuck you story to the fandom, um, then his soulmate would be Cedric Diggory. Oh, Kira, what? <laughs> But if you want to get sexy, I'm saying that Neville Longbottom's a choice. <laughs> Can you see? Uh-huh. Are you seeing me? <laughs> and, you know, honestly, this could be um, the prologue of a time travel fic. Yeah, if you wanted to do Cedric, it could be prologue to him time traveling. Yeah. Well, the setup is Jilly, so that's her decision. Um, yeah, go 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 right, go right, Margaret. Um, so that's sort of like it's sort of like an idea, right? The idea presents itself, and then in terms of the conflict, the conflict because the question was about how do you build a conflict whole cloth once you've kind of outside of the canon. 
if, if it's rooted in something, so you could go back. So the, in this case, we've got ties back to something in canon, which is that the Weasleys have done something to him. There's a betrayal to sort out. Um, Not just his. Right. Because it, if Harry is Hermione's soulmate, then they've potioned the hell out of her too. Right. The question becomes is, does he leave Britain without her? Well, I think if... No, I don't think so. I think that he would... And, I, and actually, I think the scenario in this case would be the same, whether it was Neville or Hermione. Because if he picks up that book and it's burned away and he reads about soul magic, mate magic, and he looks at that book and he sees either Neville or Hermione's name there. And he goes, why? Why? They should, we should have been more attracted to each other. We should have, and they were already, uh, you know, wanting to spend time together. But it should have been more, shouldn't it? That could be the question he asked himself. Shouldn't it have been more and um and then he wonders are are they are they potion too and the easy way for him to maybe figure that out and and then you have to deal with okay this is if this is a post hogwarts harry has he sorted things out with the bank has he made peace with them has he made restitution if he has that could be a resource because the question becomes is do, does the bank actually know it was them or do they get out of the bank in their apologies because i really don't remember is it clear in canon that greed not that the goblins knew that you know i have headcanon myself with that word that the goblins knew that um he that hermione and harry had robbed the bank so but who saw them was it just griphook i'm pretty sure griphook knew it was them Griphook was with them. Right, but I don't think Griphook would have told anybody. So, you know, it's it's fanon that the, you know that that Hermione and um Harry and was it just Hermione and Harry or was it Hermione and Mary and Ron? It was it was all three of them. Yeah. But did anybody see it? I just don't remember. Um but I think if he's in the bank and he's, you know, been shown to these vaults, then he's shown, then he's, he's done his due digit, um, 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 diligence on that front. And you could, you could actually write it because the Weasleys might be very invested in his, him getting his fortune, right? So he could have been advised by the Weasleys, you need to make, go make things right with the bank. Or maybe Bill even advised him that, like, you know, if they know who you were, you need to go sort this out and pay whatever fine they want you to pay. Because, you know, if you just maybe even talk to the director of the bank and, and tell them what you did and why you did it and apologize um, and make restitution. Right. So, but if he sorted things out with the bank and things are kosher with them, he can potentially, you've got him potentially as a resource with the bank to get Hermione there or Neville, person of your choice. Um, and they, all he has to do to, to deal with this whole potential love potion thing is like, he doesn't even have to question here. He hands Hermione a book, right? She going to take that book because she she's would, Hermione. Because <laughs> she's Hermione. And if she's under the influence of a love potion, it's going to burn it away. And then he's going to have to be like, yeah, I know you're mad, but you can't actually kill him right now. We need to go to, we need to go to Rome. I usually have it be that when I've done it, um, the book of souls, I usually have it be that it works on anybody who wants to seek this, the book out. Um, 
but you could have it just be that it's just enchanted for wizards. It's entirely, since it's entirely a fan and construct, whether it's the soul orb or the book of souls or whatever, if it's just, since it's a fan and construct, you can do whatever you want with it. Now in Aliomoto, um, which won't come out, this won't come out till I think the sequel, the, I don't know if it's the second book, I think is where I have this plotted in. I laid the, I foreshadowed it in the first book, which is that, um, a descendant of Salazar Slytherin. Slytherin um, was the each of the four houses at Hogwarts was responsible for a particular type of um, magic. But Sly Slytherin was was responsible. He's sort of the caretaker of the the soul orb, and it was you know designed to to more to bring people together based on magical compatibility for breeding strong magic in future wizards and witches. And one of his descendants got really brassed off about the way the wizarding world was treating the memory of his, of Salazar Slytherin because it had gotten distorted and his beliefs about family magic and ritual magic had been distorted into this um, dark wizard bullshit and parcel craft was starting to be demonized. And so he hid it into one of the Slytherin ancestral vaults to be spiteful. And it was the only one, the only orb, the only soul orb. There's one of them. And he hid it um, because wizards and witches weren't being obedient to the will of magic anyway. So fuck them very much. And so he just ran, took, took all their cookies and ran away. Well, Tom Riddle is the heir of Slytherin. So the first time Severus Prince takes his son to the bank he's going to get access to the Slytherin Ancestral Vaults and they're going to find the Soul Orb in there. But it's been missing for hundreds and hundreds of years to the point that people think it's just a myth. I'm not mad. Yet. I mean, you could <laughs> there's <get mad>. potential. <laughs> it just depends on what happens with this orb afterwards. Well, I mean, Aliyamoto is all about laying the groundwork for people to start become more obedient to magic and to keeping their magic healthy and um, getting involved in, in personal ritual crafts. So um, getting them to the point that they're, they stop marrying for position and for money and start marrying and having children based upon, you know, love and magical compatibility is a, is a big part of the direction of that because magic is they're going to keep going down this spiral of diluting magic and making uh, to the point that it becomes weak and corrupt if they keep up with their their especially their personal ritual craft so um where leomoto ends is with like severus kind of going through like and talking with the baby who can't even understand him but he's he's just talking to talking to to Thomas about personal ritual and how how important it is and explaining why it's important and that becomes then the lead into the second book so anyway um but the whole theme conflicts the, right the whole theme of the the series is about magical renewal not just saving magic but about the magical renewal sort of a with a restoration of it but also um but growth in magic was sort of where I want to, I'm not standing up. I'm just going to ignore, totally ignore you, Siri. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's something else. So in this, um, 
once you get to, so your, your setup, I find that your setup is like leading up to them going to Rome and presenting the book to Hiro Ito and being like, okay, now what? And Hiro's like, well, we've been really looking well, for Well, you've got the Weasleys at home. You've got the love potion. Is it illegal? I would think so. Is it illegal only for Harry, but not for Hermione because she's a muggle-born? I don't write stuff like that. <laughs> or is it not illegal at all because the magical world is fucked up? Um, and I don't know how they would write it illegal for both um, because that gives you a court scene. <laughs> love, a, love a court scene. <laughs> Anytime I can put a Weasley in jail, I will. Especially if you've got, if the intention was, you know, there's a marriage contract for Harry, and so there could be under under the the influence of a love potion, you could argue that's attempted line theft. Um, there could be purebloods who don't want the book to surface because it, um, if your pureblood child is fated has a soulmate who's a muggle-born. What does that say? What does that say about your pureblood um, ideology? What is magic telling you about your pureblood um, ideology? Is that it's bullshit? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this all depends upon where you want to go with the conflict. Do you want the conflict to be about, um, ultimately, in the end, kind of restructuring... Does putting the Book of Souls in the hand and and the circumstances under which Harry found the book give the ICW an excuse to go in and tear magical Britain apart that they've been looking for? Although I think they've had plenty of opportunity. Um, is it is your central conflict just about bringing the Weasleys to justice and rectifying that past wrong? Uh, what is it you want the? What is it, what is it that you want to do? With the story, and that's that would be dependent upon the kind of story that you personally want to tell. Um, and there are various ways that you could approach this. Um, it doesn't have to be a vault. Um, it could be. Um, what if, on the last day there in Hogwarts, Harry and Hermione are kind of fed up with everybody, or maybe it's the day after they they finished all their exams, and Harry says, "Hey." Let, let, let's go see what the room um, requirement looks like now. So they go and they spend a couple minutes trying to get it open. It won't open. It won't open. And Hermione says, well, let's just let the school show us what it wants to show us. And so they walk back and forth. Show us what you want to show us. Show us and, then, and then it opens. And in that room is the Book of Souls. Because Hogwarts has been keeping it safe. Forever how long. And they find it together. Or. If you wanted to back up and say. Like you just look. Just kind of think. You know, different ways this could be inserted into your story idea. Um, yeah. Hogwarts would have plenty of shit to say actually. I mean. I imagine if Hogwarts was given a voice. Dumbledore would get cussed the fuck out on a regular basis. Until he died. He might actually leave. And then she would have to send him howlers. Um. Which would be amusing. Like, like, what if, like, during the events of the, um, the Chamber of Secrets, um, 
Harry knocked loose some kind of Harry or the snake knocked loose some kind of enchantment on a ward down there somewhere and it released um Hogwarts's intelligence which has been you know held hostage for you know maybe like a thousand years maybe Salazar Slytherin cursed it as he was leaving because he was pissed off and then he died before he'd come back and fix it and like she has shit to say <laughs> I have something to say about all this damn it I actually have a plot bunny where um, Harry is in um, R or training for fuck's sake. And um, he collapses after um, some exercises, some magical exercises and take him to St. Mungo's. And as it turns out, he has a core fracture and he has a core fracture because Jenny has been overdosing him on love potions to keep him in a relationship with her. Wow. She keeps doubling it and doubling it and doubling it because she can't keep him. He keeps trying to break up with her. And Hermione is his next of kin. So she orders all kinds of tests. She says, test him for fucking everything. Get to the bottom of this. He should not have a core fracture. And um, yeah, that's how they find out that Jenny, um, because Ron stopped um, dosing Hermione because he's lazy. And it wasn't worth it. So what if I like I do like the idea that he's he is too lazy to keep her potioned. Um, <laughs> Isn't it funny? I mean, it's terrible, but also it's like totally in character. So I do have a, a little bit of an angstier bunny around this, but okay. it would it would uh, I probably get hate mail. I might I might get hate mail just for voicing the idea. What if it's actually? Out. I feel you know. Go ahead. What if it's actually far enough in that? Harry is married to Ginny and he's bear with me and she's already pregnant when he gets the love potions burned away. Now I would probably use this as like a catalyst. So what if magical Britain's laws aren't the greatest thing, but their populace is so complacent and almost to the point of so brainwashed into believing that they have to put up with the laws of magical Britain. But what if international laws supersede them unless like you actually file a complaint with the ministry? Because what if there's like some clever wording in like complaints at the ministry saying something along the lines of like when you file a complaint that you're agreeing to waive your rights under international law and surrender yourself to laws in Britain. So what if Harry gets, through whatever method you find the Book of Souls, he's married, Ginny's pregnant, and he finds out, he gets this love potion burned away, he realizes that he's been totally fucked with. So he goes to the ICW with, with the book or the orb or whatever it is, and he says, what, what do I do? I'm married to somebody that I was potioned to marry. And they asked, if you complained, did you talk to anybody in Britain about this? And he says, no, I came to you. And I say, well, so you haven't signed your rights away under international law. And we can, we can get your marriage dissolved and sue the fuck out of them. And we can sue for you to get sole custody of this child. I'm not mad at it. And so then, of course, I would have Harry, I would probably have in this one have, it'd be again, Harry, Hermione, and then Hermione blood adopts the child, and they do not name it, whatever the hell weirdo names they gave those kids in the books. James Sirius, Albus Severus, and Lily Luna. 
I can deal with everything except Alba Severus. Um, but still, I've never been a real big fan of naming people after people. Not close. I mean, middle names are fine. No, I I noodled it for a long time in Small Magic before I realized that just nothing really else made you know nothing else really made sense because Luna's her mother and. I think you know it was a flower name. It just it just made sense, but I spent a lot of time trying to make it not make sense <laughs> because no, yeah. I just generally am not a fan of giving a kid a first name that's after a very close relative. It's like oh, live up to something, would you? Um, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Well, I think I would write. I wouldn't do a kidnapping. I'd have the ICW put her in holding. Um, to monitor her health and ensure that she was capable of delivering the baby to term. Um, this is where the kind of the, the hate mail would probably come from actually is um, the people who think that Jenny would have a right to her baby. Well, she's a rapist. Yeah. That's the way I, feel I don't about think it. rapists should be um, entitled to, to, um, to, um, to, um, to any children fought, um, um, created during the act of rape. I agree. Mother or father. Like those men and they're suing their rape victims for access to their children. Yeah. So I don't, I just, I wouldn't go down that path at all. So she wouldn't get to see her kid ever. I read a fic once where they put Harry Potter in jail um, for the death or the murder of Neville. Um, except he wasn't guilty. And eventually they realized that and they got him out. He'd been in Azkaban um, and he, he hated them all. Um, no one was immune. And Jenny tried to trap him into a marriage by using some potion and one of his hairs to make a baby. Um, and he forced her to give birth to the baby. Then he took the baby and used an adoption potion to make the baby the son of um, Luna and Neville. And so the last scene in the in the in the story is that Luna shows up at Longbottom Manor and introduces Augusta to um, her great grandson. But they bash the fuck out of everybody in that story, including Hermione. So it's a so it's a hard read for me because she's my unicorn. Well, she's not my unicorn, but I do have a hard time with Hermione bashing because I just don't find a, a good basis for it. Um, I have a hard time with Death Eater Hermione. I'm like, what? Come on now. <laughs> but what I have a worse time with are those stories where she and Harry have, yeah, this totally a thing, um, where she and Harry have a one night stand and she gets pregnant and she runs away and keeps his child from him. And then when he finds out, he forgives her and they get married. And and I'm thinking to myself, no. Number one, Hermione would not take Harry's heart's desire from him. All he wants in the world is a family. We know that from book one. And two, if she did, he wouldn't forgive her. No. You want to write a setup for for Hermione bashing? To me, that'd be her 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 taking off with his kid would be it. I would not have a relationship for him after that. Um, it's, it's it's an atrocity. You know, but in this in this scenario that we came up with, um, because of the question about how to come up with a a conflict after post canon, um, 
and where you go with the basic setup all depends upon what your end game is. Well, what do you want? What do you want the end result to be? Do you want the the excitement of a trial? Yes, I do. But you know, you do you, boo. Do you want to just have like a quiet romance? Um, in which case, just them turning in the book to the ICW and they decide they like Rome and they um, attend maybe the uh, what do you call, usually call it? The Academy, International Academy of Magic? I do, yeah. Like, hey, we're soulmates. We're not on the influence of potions anymore. Do we really want to go back to that awful place? No, I mean either. Let's go to the International Academy of Magic and... Um, we'll use Sirius' money to buy a villa. Right. <laughs> we'll get some education and make some babies. <laughs> so that could be kind of more and like... And that will work with any pairing. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's Harry Potter magic. <laughs> pick, pick your person. So that could be more like the quiet romance. They kind of get a new start on life. Um, if you want that kind of story. Do you want a big confrontation with the Weasleys? That could be more of a the trial scenario. Do you want to have you know Harry responsible for tearing the, the government of magical Britain down to its foundation? That's a very different kind of story. But they all could stem from the same basic setup. And they're all valid choices. Yep, whatever shakes your tree, what kind of story do you want to tell? Yeah, there's lots of um, there's lots of potential antagonists in Magical Britain. If you want to do a takeover of the Ministry, where the ICW comes in and 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 tears it apart, um, if you want to have you know Hermione be the future minister, if that's kind of the direction you're going. Um, I usually say Hermione over Harry. It's, it's just because I don't see Harry as having that kind of ambition. No. Honestly, in, in, in canon, I think Harry would be content to play Quidditch and be a house husband. Yeah. 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 So it all depends upon what you want to, what kind of thing makes you excited to write about, right? If it really excites you to write a court scene, go the direction of a big, you know, international brouhaha. <laughs> go that route. Y'all, that yeah. is the single best part of my whole story. The that, international brouhaha. Every time that line comes up, I just, especially because they all say it so seriously. <laughs> I know. We're going to convene the international brouhaha of 1995. And I'm like, they said that with a straight face. <laughs> and he was dead fucking serious about it. He was doing his fucking job. Uh, that, hero, you, hero, you do your fucking job. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, honestly, when I was trying to figure out what to call it, it just kind of popped into my brain, and then I got so tickled that nothing else was ever going to come out of my mouth. I could just see Harry and Hermione looking at each other every time that's said, and be like, "Yeah, dog, no. can you believe they say that? Can you believe they say that with a straight face?" I mean, once it was there, it was there. Sometimes, like with you, when you're doing, when you're writing like that, and you, uh, it just like it's. It is what it is. And then you're just kind of stuck with it. I'm sure they are very aware of what the word brouhaha means. <laughs> Probably from what it The meaning is isn't funny. The pronunciation of it and the actual word itself is really funny. It's sort of like the word shenanigans, right? It's like nobody really takes it seriously when you talk about shenanigans. Um, or tomfoolery. It used to be something words people took very seriously, right? But now we just kind of 
shake our head about it. So, I mean, because um, the word is actually French and it means social agitation, um, basically, or, you know, it's when, when something gets, when something small gets big and that's exactly what's happened. Something small, something small got really big. <laughs> Harry Potter ran away from home and called and caused an international brouhaha. <laughs> Edie shenanigans is one of my favorite words. I use shenanigans a lot, and it is ridiculous. I really enjoy the word shenanigans as well. But brouhaha is creeping up there. But so. <laughs> to go, but in terms of brainstorming, I think we did a little bit of on-the-fly brainstorming there. Um, and with that kind of setup, you can build a conflict based upon the kind of story you want to tell. And that is all, that's all dependent on you. You can, you can dig deep because this love potion thing is ripe. So there's, you know, there's, there's lots of things around that, that would, um, that could be addressed or, you know, I don't favor glossing it over, um, but addressing it and moving on. Um, and you could go a different route, right? Finding some way to yeah, you could explore, have some closure on it. You could explore them getting help in a different country, under a different judicial system, where things are just... And, and if that's the kind of story you want to write, where you see them in a different magical environment with... Um, with good teachers and things that they've maybe never had before. Maybe they neither have realized how deprived they have been. And so part of their healing is exploring this, this new magical world that you get to build from the ground up. If that doesn't appeal to you, if you really like writing a, you know, long involved court scene, which we all love to read, then you could really dig deep and have the climax of your story be the conclusion of the trial. And then the reader's left to, Maybe with a little bit of you know, a little bit of falling action, the readers left to kind of infer what happens with, um, with the the pairing in the future. Um, so it all depends upon what what turns you on as a as a writer as to which direction you would go. And actually, you could even have the basic same series of events, but depending upon what you like to write, it could come out very differently than what I might like to write or what Kira might like to write, because we would dig deep on different topics. Like one person might really emphasize the legal uh, implications of things and the, and the governance and the political, the political aspects of it and dig deep there. Another one might dig deeper on the romance side of it. Um, so you could have the same basic arc, but have different writers would approach it. It come out very differently because you have different things that appeal to you as a writer that to explore. For me, one of the issues that always rings home for me in, in Harry Potter is, um, is body autonomy and consent because it's treated so cavalierly. I mean, I want to stab people sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. Block, haphazardly is a good, is a good term. Yes. Haphazardly. It, another awesome word to say haphazardly. Um, it's just like, how could, how could a spell that forces you to feel an emotion be called anything less than a curse. Ugh. Right. So why is it a cheering charm when it should be a cheering curse? I agree. 
and so that 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 explains a lot about um consent about consequences in the magical world and so those things pop up repeatedly in my work in harry potter because <laughs> they're not there in canon and they fucking should be so and you could actually and you, when you're exploring the differences between like britain and like rome or something you could actually have it be this stark contrast that some of the stuff they got the people get away with in uh, Britain, you don't get away with internationally. Like, you can't just cast a jelly leg jinx at somebody just because you want to. I actually find that. It, I, I, I find the idea of the emotion modification stuff horrifying, too. But the idea of my body autonomy being taken away in that way, being forced into movement and stuff that I don't consent to, really bothers me. You could use a tickling jinx to kill somebody. Yeah. You could suffocate somebody with a tickling jinx. Some people might actually feel like that they would rather have the cruciatus than have um, be get a tickling jinx applied repeatedly because they just find it so objectionable. So, and it could be that it, that could be something you could explore is the difference between the UK because it's become very isolationist and and they have you know even though they're part of the ICW maybe they're always at the cusp of being kicked out for like human rights violations or whatever or magical creature rights or you know i actually find that really objectionable that sapient and sentient beings who are, are all called magical creatures but whatever um unless you're going to call i mean you know honestly which it's all wizards. magical beings if if you have magic you're a creature then then wizards and witches are creatures too right that, that's the only way i can do it deal with it that it's not so disgusting well, parallels could be drawn, Charlie. Or would that be Dragon? Either. Okay, we'll call you. We'll call you. We'll call you Mr. Dragon. Or <laughs> what was that? What was that? Miss. 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 We had a Miss Dragon. Okay. And we had, we, I, we were laughing in, in appreciation at someone's username the other day. Um, and I was trying to decide how you would address them. And I think we concluded with. Miss Muffin or something like that. Yeah. So I'm I now I feel, I feel Miss like Murder Muffin. Miss Murder Muffin. Miss no, Murder Muffin. Miss Murder. Yes. Muffin. We decided Miss Murder Muffin. Like if, if if you're going to be putting murder in your, maybe we should even make her like you know Duchess Murder Muffin because if you're going to put murder in your username, you might deserve a little more. You know. No, somebody. <laughs> just, I, I'm totally. I I was scrolling past this person's username. I, I I don't I don't know what they write, but their author name was Coquettish Murder Muffin. I laughed my ass off, and then I went right over to share that with Kira. I'm like, how do you? But how do you address somebody whose name is Coquettish Murder Muffin? I mean, do you say, "Hey, Muffin," and Kira said, "No, I think." It'd be Miss Murder Muffin. I was like, Miss Murder Muffin, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Miss Murder Muffin. She because she's a fucking lady. <laughs> um, did you want to do a different fandom just to see um something a little different, and then we'll just do one more and then we'll end the podcast? Sure. Um do we want to do another post-canon thing or outside of canon thing? Or do we just want to do something random? I don't know. Well, okay. I think it's... I, think it's I little... have never watched a single episode of Boondock Saints. Let's do a... Um, let's do another... Um, 
Oh, well, I haven't watched the movies either. Let's do something extraneous to canon again, because I think it's, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is how to get away from the, the bonds of canon. Okay. Um, I was going to say Stargate, but I actually don't like getting too far away from the bonds of canon and Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> she likes to dig in. Uh, well, it's not, it's not, it's not that I, um, it's not that I want to stick to canon because I do change things, but I don't actually, I don't want, I'm not interested in writing post series for the most part, not as a main feature of the story. No, because there comes a certain point in Stargate in both franchises where you're just like, no, and fuck you. <laughs> Right, so like I like to dig in to Stargate SG One. I prefer like in the first five seasons, and then if I'm going to dig into SGA, I like in the first three. Yeah. So, I mean, and then I diverge, you know, but I still prefer to set start there. But although I do have this idea of of writing a um a Stargate AU where John um um gets injured out of the air force and he comes back to work for his dad and um, he's being introduced around uh, Shepard industries and um, Patrick takes him to meet his new chief scientist, um, which is McKay. And John doesn't know whether he should suggest he get fired or try to ask him out. <laughs> Cause he's a beast. <laughs> and he, and he probably wants some, but he's not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be kind of canon adjacent because they would be coming from their canon circumstances but Rodney didn't go to Siberia he he quit and went to work for Patrick Shepard because Patrick Shepard is in fact also a beast and the government won't mess with Patrick so he's kind of like hiding behind Patrick's skirt kilt whatever <laughs> yo yo limo <laughs> Somebody predicted earlier that we would be diverging to, to Hannibal on every podcast. And so I'm actually going to, you know, fulfill their lean in, lean into that, fulfill their, for their prophetic um, utterance. Okay. Um, Hannibal. No, we don't have to do, we don't have to do Hannibal, but just, I have to mention this story. I, somebody mentioned Teen Wolf. There was this, um, it's a, I don't, can't remember the name of it. It was a very short story, very short, where Styles meets Hannibal through the, through the FBI. And he, um, Willis is me this story. I did. Willis is teacher. Willis is instructor. And he meets Hannibal, and he instantly develops like kind of like an intellectual crush on Hannibal. But because Styles is magic, he sees that Hannibal eats people. He knows he's a cannibal. He actually thinks at first that Hannibal's a Wendigo, but then he realizes he just eats a lot of people. <laughs> and so Derek meets Hannibal the first time. And he's sniffing, and Styles is like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's not actually a Wendigo, though. He just eats a lot of people. And Derek's like, this is the guy you keep talking about? And Styles is like, no, no, it's good. It's good. It's okay. I'm learning a lot from him. And he's like, I want to tell him that I know. And Derek's like, really, Styles, you want to tell him? He's like, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. I want to tell him. The best part, though, is that when he realizes that Will doesn't know. Right? <laughs> Will has no idea. And He's so pissed off. He's like, oh, I can't. He, he, really? Like, he, really? Actually, he doesn't actually say this, but he's like, looks at Derek's like, I can't even with these two. And he just <laughs> stomps off because his teacher that he admires so much does not know that Hannibal is a cannibal. It is hysterical. It's very but short. What, it's, but but it's, what I think it actually is, is it really highlights Will's willful blindness when it comes to Hannibal. 
uh, he is purposefully blind to um to Hannibal in this fic. He doesn't want to see. He doesn't want to see. Yeah. Um, but so in that, it's just I just, like Edie. I just found it so hysterical in that story. The way when 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 Derek meets meets Hannibal, and Styles wants to make an appointment as a patient with Hannibal to tell him that he knows that he's the Chesapeake Gripper. <laughs> and Derek's like, really? But anyway, when he's sniffing, Derek's sniffing the air. He's like, no, no, no. He, I know he smells like a Wendigo, but he just eats a lot of people. <laughs> I just lost it. I absolutely lost it. I will look for a link if I can find it. I'll put it in the podcast link library later, but I cannot remember the name of it at the top of my head. But it was, like I said, it is very short. I'm going to say it's under 5K, probably under 2K, actually. It was, it was like a blip, but it was, it was funny. Okay, somebody did ask, um, this is a quick question. It says, speaking of different approaches, the same thing. What, which one sentence prompt? led to yours and Jilly's RT stories. I love the stories, but I'm stumped. Um, it was me, Jilly, and Lady Holder. Mm-hmm. Um, we did, um, we, we had three choices. Um, and honestly, I think that all three of our stories encompassed all three of these choices. Because they were in order. Number one, given the opportunity, well, you didn't time travel. This is the only one that Jilly didn't meet. But she actually, she kind of did meet it because she does something else. Okay, number one, given the opportunity to time travel, your unicorn decides to right or wrong and damn the consequences. Two, your unicorn receives information from an outside perspective that causes them to change course and go forward in a different direction from canon. Number three, your unicorn says no, vehemently. (laughs) And I think basically... That we did all three of them, but the one we chose was number two. Right. Your unicorn receives information from an outside perspective that causes them to change course and go forward in a different direction from canon. And my unicorn um, in um, in all the world is, is Harry Potter, you know. Information from the future given to him through Ragnarok um, changes the course of his whole life. Yep. Now, I have a lot of different people getting information, and Tony gets information repeatedly that causes him to change course, but the information he actually got was the information he got as a child. But he actually doesn't change. And Lady Holder's characters got their information from his ear. Okay, so we're going to do another one. Um, Let's do... um, Well, since you brought it up, let's let's do a Rodney Says No to Siberia. Okay. Now, somebody wrote a story where Rodney gets rescued from Siberia. Really? Or from going to Siberia? Ellie, wasn't that your story you wrote with the Ferris wheel and John and help me out? John ends up on a Ferris wheel with Rodney and um, he is, and John um, gets him away from from all the bad people who want Rodney to do things Rodney don't want to do. It's called Getaway, and the sequel is Ferris Wheels. Was it Ferris Wheels, Ferris Wheels an RT project? Or am I... Would you get us some links for that? Because we can put them in the podcast library because people will ask. So Rodney... But Rodney basically got kidnapped 
because he said no. And But what if he just says no? Rodney says no. I'm not going to go. Fuck you. Do you have any idea how overqualified I am for this? So what does he do? He's Canadian. And the United States government can't actually force him to go anywhere. He gets his marching orders from Hammond. So if he just flips it back at Hammond and says no and fuck you. What happens next? Um. So suddenly one of the hottest properties in defense contracting is no longer working for the United States government. I mean, this is practically a feeding frenzy. Right? <laughs> they could, you know, I don't know that the SGC would risk trying to force an, um, him onto a plane to Russia because they're a secret project. The most political maneuver they can make at this point is to let McKay walk away. I mean, they could try to contact his government. That's the, that's the, I would want Rodney to be able to get out with that penalty. So they could try to threaten him with your contract, you know, but he could say, actually, my contract prevents you from sending me out of the country without my permission. And you do not have my permission. So, no. Um, and so Canada could back him up. There could be a very hot prime minister, hint, hint, who has the hot mm. for Rodney. Mm. I think you wrote a very hot prime minister that had the hots for Rodney. I did. I did. He appears in um, Hold My Coffee, but he's also in uh, My Shifter Fic, where, um, where there are dragons. I've totally forgotten what it's called. Patient Zero. Oh, okay. Um, but so you have a, the he, he do the whole he knows the prime minister thing. Um, the prime minister could be like, I'm not going to back you idiots up into trying to force McKay. Besides, if if you alienate him, we get him back. Hello, hotness. Um, <laughs> That's Paul Gross. He was on Due South. Very on brand. Very Canadian. So, um, okay. So Rodney says no. Um, he, the, the SGC realizes they fucked up because they have breached his contract, um, by trying to force him to go to Siberia. And I would think he would need like orders saying cut that said he had to go in order for him to show that his contract has been breached. And then he just walks away and he goes to, goes, does he go to work somewhere else or does he go to go to go home? What's the idea of him starting his own company? In my Dr. Shepard AU, he leaves the SGC because of Siberia. And um, he ends up hooking up with his college best friend, John. And they make their own company. Um, and by the time SGC catches up with Rodney again, because they need him for the help with the gate. Um, him and John are um, working um, on shield generators for, um, for Navy SEALs. Oh, that's right. That's your um, Dr. Shepard, I don't know, fic, whatever. The one, yeah, the one, I don't know, or, or Dr. Shepard, AU, yeah. The one you didn't title and you put up on EAD and confused all of it. At least that was not as confusing as trying to find the one. What's the, the Big one? Gay Love in Canada? Big Love, yeah. it, which is <laughs> very hard to find Big Gay Love in Canada. It's not called Big Gay Love in Canada. <laughs> it always will be in my head. Um, I also have an AU where 
a female McKay left um, the SGC over Siberia or something else because um, she got mad. And when Jack O'Neill goes to have a conversation with her, she's working um, in a top government, a top secret government operation that's more secret than his own. Um, and he has to get permission from the president to even enter the facility where McKay is um, the lead engineer on the creation of Spartan armor. And John is her Spartan. I have a good Halo AU. And they're looking for her because Carter is stuck off world in a um, in a device and they can't get her out. And the only thing she's been able to tell them is that they need to get McKay. Um, or or, or this device is going to kill her. Um, and in the end, it, it turned out to be an ancient device um, that McKay is able to prepare. Um, and John and O'Neill are able to get Carter out of it. But um, yeah. And O'Neill talks the president into folding the Spartan program into the SGC. It's, um, it's draft. I have a zero draft in the first two chapters. I mean, it's on her hard drive, so not anywhere accessible to anybody but her. Right. Um, but please keep, I have, I have over a hundred works in progress, so I have a lot of stuff. I'm a very creative person. <laughs> oh. Or I'm a very fickle writer, one of the two. <laughs> before we go any, before we go further into this little plot idea, brains, the brainstorming on this little plot idea, um, I wanted to mention something about the group plot dynamic. Sometimes, um, <clears throat> if you encounter somebody who gets very, um, there's somebody we, that used to be in this group that we were, um, I was in on Live Journal, who one of her, what part of her dynamic in the group was to throw out a lot of helpful quote-unquote ideas at people um so people would be like coming in for an idea and and she would throw out just like epic amounts of, like idea this idea that idea this idea I mean, it was just this constant stream of stuff that she'd be dumping and she kept remarkably good track of these random ideas that she just would throw out at people and then try to claim some kind of ownership of them later if you're the kind of person who feels very, very, very territorial about every creative thing that crosses your brain, don't group plot. Because that's just when you, one of the things when you'd sit down, you do a group, group mind meld with people and you're kind of, you're kind of, no one owns any piece of that. For starters, you can't own an idea, but you're giving your creative energy to somebody else to get their story going. Not so that you can, I don't know what, get credit or something for it. But and a lot of times in a conversation like that, you won't even remember who said what. Right. Like there, there. Sometimes when I am thinking of something that I, that Julie and I have discussed, I have to go look back through our search history, or if we're in bitches, I have to do a little search term, try to find the original conversation. Sometimes that conversation took took place a week ago, <laughs> and I have already forgotten who said what. Right. So it's one of those things. It's like if you're. If you're, for starters, if you're the type to get very territorial about your ideas, don't share them in a group setting. And, but this one lady, particularly that I was thinking of her, I feel, I felt like what she was doing was trying to, like, I don't know, create a record of all of her ideas in the public space so that she could claim that they were hers later. Not, it, it, which is ridiculous because we've talked about repeatedly that you can't own an idea. But if you see this dynamic with people happening in a group setting, don't don't bounce with these kinds of people. 
because it's just going to be exhausting for you to be, oh, you know, have them nitpicking everything you write and say, oh, well, you didn't give me credit for that one piece, which was my idea. Yeah, but it's my expression, my original expression of the idea. So shut up. It's it's just it's 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 very crass ass behavior, which is why sometimes when somebody tries to guess my plot, I get so furious because it's that same asshole that'll come back six months from now. Oh, I'm glad I'm so glad you used my idea on your completed fucking work that you that you started posting before I ever said a word. Right. Okay. Okay, whore. <laughs> That's what you get called a whore for in my world. And not putting up your cart at the store. Come on now. Or parking your cart in the middle of the aisle. You. <laughs> Put your cart up. But people will try to claim ownership of your idea. And the thing is, when, no when we've talked about nobody can own an idea. But it can be something as vague as. Um, I'm going to write a story. Where Rodney says no to. Siberia. No, Rodney says no to Siberia, which is that is vague. That's not even an idea, right? That is vague as fuck. Or they'll try to claim ownership of like if you said, "I want to write a story where where um, Severus Snape is sorted into Slytherin or Hufflepuff, uh, Hufflepuff Snape." That that's nothing, okay? That is nothing. But somebody will try to claim that they own that, okay? They will try to claim that they. And this dynamic emerges in group brainstorming sessions. And you'll start to see these little toxic behaviors from some people. And they'll strike you funny. They may just like kind of raise some red flags. Like, why is this person throwing out so many ideas unrelated to the discussion? Why are they just constantly dropping the idea of all the million stories they want to write in this thing where it's not germane? And it could be. And because, like I said, I've seen this dynamic in the past. I've been in fandom a long time. It could be that they're trying to, maybe even not consciously, look for ways to own part of your thing. And they'll bug you about it. And you'll probably be nice. And you'll give them credit. When you don't. don't. When it's just dumb. Don't be nice. Don't be nice. Just like, this has nothing to do with you. If you didn't actually write it, go the fuck away. You give you give credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. And credit is not due in those circumstances. If you borrow somebody's OC, give them credit. It's the right thing to do. You don't write in fandom without crediting your actual fandom. Right. So if you get inspiration from somebody, give them credit. Give them what they're due. But if your beta is especially fucking helpful, give them extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> extra, extra credit. So my point about bringing this up is because there can be in the group more so than not. We're, we're giving examples of what a brainstorming session can be like. We've done some um, idea bounces, which is a lot brainstorming. There's a brainstorming element to that. When we post my plot drift for this November Nano, which I think the end result came out a lot like the plot drift, there's a lot of brainstorming in that because I had no idea at the start. Um, so... My point about this is that we've given examples of different kinds. It's very difficult to give an example on a podcast of a group brainstorming session. And they can be very productive to get multiple points of view on things. Can be. But there are also all of these little things that can happen that can be counterproductive. And so I want to put the special caution out there that if something is raising red flags for you about someone's behavior in a group in a group situation, it's probably for a good reason. You may not be able to articulate what's bugging you about it, but 
there's something there and you might as well just go ahead and pay attention to your instincts and just don't don't with that person you know this is your creative process and it's important i mean hopefully nobody's process is so precious that you know you don't want a princess in the pea process where if there's one teeny tiny element out of place that you can't create be creative but you need to respect your creative process. And one of the things that can throw you off faster than anything else is the wrong person all up in your mind palace. So, and it's perfectly okay for you to decide who you're going to be creative around. You don't owe anybody access to your process or access to your ideas or access to your creative energy. Just as much as you don't owe anybody room in your head. Right. Um, whether they're being overcritical or being intrusive, trying to make you write their pairing or um, write their favorite trope, that kind of intrusion, um, you don't you don't owe them space. No. And I think being a brainstorming partner, being somebody that an author can go to and be there the person helps them work stuff out. That is such a giving thing to do. And it comes back to you to give that away. You get it back. It, it's very, it's very, it's very organic. It's very creative. It, I find it very enriching. The more I brainstorm with other people, the better I am at brainstorming my own ideas. Um, and when I see, you know, something that I talk to somebody about come to fruition in a story, I, I get super excited that I was able to help them get there. I don't sit there and think, oh, my God, they didn't give me credit for that. So um, if you're of this, if you are of the type who is super territorial about and it's, if you are, it's OK. If you're super territorial about every idea that crosses your brain, you may not be a good fit for brainstorming with people because you are not going to be able to let go of the ideas that come out that that are out there you're going to feel possessive of them and if that's your space you got to figure out how to get over that before you can really brainstorm effectively with people does that make sense yeah so just that's just my word of caution is uh, guard your guard your guard your creative space like a three-headed dog you know you need to make sure that it's working for you. And if there's like that one person who is throws you off, just don't do it when they're around or stick to the one-on-one or the one-on-two go with smaller groups. And that's just sometimes group dynamics can get very complicated and um, it can be a difficult thing to navigate. And if you need some advice about that kind of thing, Ask Kira. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> or me. Look at what? Or me. <laughs> okay. Um. Okay. So what I got so far in my little bubbles, I've got Rodney says no to Siberia. No and fuck you to Hammond. Canadian PM says what the fuck. <laughs> How dare you. What the actual fuck? So what does Rodney do? What if... Um, well, he could start his own thing. He could... 
decided to take some time off for a little while from um, whatever. Maybe he goes to teach for a little while. Maybe <laughs> can you imagine Rodney is a professor? So what if he goes to um, what is the? There's really a great one actually where Ro where John and Rodney both are teachers, and Rodney one of Rodney's students gets pissed off at him and puts his there. John and Rodney are a couple, and um, he gets mad at um, the, one of the students gets mad at Rodney and puts his profile on on this dating site, and actually Rodney gets a lot of attention because he's so smart, and John gets super jealous, and John teaches like English literature, and he gets so bent around the axle he likes trying starts taking like online classes for math, and you know like he's trying to teach himself to program and. His assistant calls Rodney and says, you need to do something about this. He's trying to learn C++. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? That sounds really cute. Is Willow here? John's an erotic mess. <laughs> Willow? Willow here, find the fic. I don't, I don't think Willow is here. No, Willow's oh. here. She's online. I just don't know if she's in the podcast. She is. We're going to hope the fic ninja but, uh, that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, so what if, um, what is that university that Charlie Epps, Charlie Epps, um, Caltech, Caltech. Okay. So what if, um, what if he winds up teaching at Caltech and, uh, then he winds up getting into a little bit or Cal Sci. Cal Sci. Thank you. Thanks dark. So he winds up at Cal Sci. Just, he, he calls them and says, look, I need something to do while I figure out my next step. Do you guys need it? And they're like, yes, 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 Dr. McKay. Of course, we would, we would love to have <laughs> you teach whatever you want. Whatever you would like to teach. Do you want to, do you want to, if you, you could have an afternoon walking session on the quad where you talk about, you know, the scientific method, we'd be fine with that. Just, just tell us what class you want us to add to this, to the curriculum and we'll do it. <laughs> um, so he, um, he goes and so he and Char maybe he and Charlie and Larry or, and Amita um, all start cooking up some idea about something. And um, I'm not sure what, but it could be interesting to insert him into that. And I think it's about the time, right time period, too. I have to double check when numbers on the air. You know what, though? No, I don't think he would. I think he would take one look at Amita. And then one look at Char Charlie and say, girl, why are you wasting your time? Because frankly, the character of Amita deserved better than what she got. I think one of the best moments in Numbers is when um, that female Dean basically called Amita to task and says, what the fuck are you doing? You're wasting your time and your potential and your career on this man. Are you serious? And one, actually, one of the best moments... In, in numbers as far as Charlie is concerned is when he sets aside all of his work to go to England with Amita so that she can do her thing. That's respect. Mm. And I really appreciate that. Charlie had all the respect for Amita that that Don never, never managed to have a single ounce of respect for himself or any of his relationships. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I do think that the I like Charlie and I like Amita. I don't like Charlie and Amita because I felt like that. No. I felt like they had the chemistry of like two overcooked fettuccine noodles. It was not good. But that, uh, I think that if it had been like, I think that boiled down to the actor and the actress not having chemistry. Yeah. Um, but Fannin makes a habit of 
turning Amita into a monster, and it's ridiculous. She was a brilliant young woman who fell in love with her professor, and her professor wasn't professional enough to say no. So, I mean, I, I'm totally down for... Um, I mean, Rodney could even be most interested in Amita at first and starts working with her on some ideas or something. Um, and then Larry gets involved, and then Charlie gets involved. But it could be an interesting dynamic to throw him into. And this would be uh, a little bit pre-series for numbers. So before Dawn is in the picture, if you want to go with canon timelines, which you don't have to, because the two shows are not in the same universe. Sorry. I had my mouth full of pills. Okay. I had my mouth full of pills. Making it just just very difficult to to talk. I don't know why I did that. Prescribed um, ones. Prescribed ones. Although I live in a state where it's legal, so you know, don't judge me. <laughs> Not that I'm doing that either, but it's still legal. I can see Amita actually being a lot more valuable to a program like Stargate, um, the, the SGC, than Charlie because Charlie's profile is too big. Yeah, his profile is huge. Um, and they already have one high-profile scientist disappearing into their program. They don't need another one. And you could honestly realistically say that because of Rodney's private work and his work for the government for so long, that Charlie has a profile that outstrips Rodney's in their personal canons. Um, so Charlie is, is not the kind of asset that can, that can just disappear into a government program. Number one, he has connections with the CIA. Um, he has connections with the FBI. He um, He's very well known in academic circles. He's very published. He's did work with the NSA. Um, these are not, um, he's not, the, he's not, he would not be attractive um, to disappear completely into the SGC. I can see him being like contracted to do side work for them, but not to like be an asset they could put on a different planet. Although we did do a plot drift where the entire Epps family goes to Atlantis, but yeah, but Charlie would have to tone down his personal his his public profile before he could do that. But yeah, I agree that in general Charlie's not. I do think he would be maybe more because of alignment of interest. Larry and Amita would be more interesting to Rodney at first. I think Larry would drive Rodney batshit, but it would be entertaining. Yeah, but it'd be entertaining conflict. Um. But that could be an interesting place to put Rodney, at least temporarily, if you wanted to like have some characters you could get. And the reason that could be interesting to do is you might have a chapter or two of him at a, the university where you see him developing maybe a bond with Amita, fighting with Larry, maybe Charlie's in the periphery. And then when Rodney figures out what he wants to do next, the semester's over, maybe he does two semesters. Don's not in the picture. If you go with the Canton line, Don's not in the picture yet. Because um, Don would be still in fugitive retrieval, right? Um, so, so you know, and Amita doesn't have her PhD yet um, at that point. So, um, but it could you could have this like build build these characters and show a little bit of you know building of these characters who are important to the story there in, in a couple of chapters while you're doing the setup and. Then you have to make the decision of do you want Rodney going completely his own direction, where he goes off, he starts maybe a think tank with these, with these other scientists, um, where they're working on what problem might they be trying to solve. Um, okay, they're trying to solve some kind of problem. They go off to go start a think tank or something, and then you have a 
Yeah, you could do green energy. Um, you could do something like um, JPL. Yeah, that's jet propulsion system um, laboratories. laboratories. They they do um, work for NASA. Um, Maybe his experience with the Stargate would make him turn towards NASA, oh, or at least space exploration. And Larry's a good. Certainly, Larry NASA wound up with interest in Larry. Um, but so you could go have them go off doing something, and then the question is: Do you is your goal to ultimately get him back to the SGC, or is your goal to just let Rodney go his own way? You could kind of like do an episode format, you know, kind of like we did with the feeding frenzy, and you could have him like just trying out um, different things, moving around, not at the same pace, and it, it wouldn't be. Um, it would be more like a novella series. Like we could have him at Cal Sci, and then he could do um, a stint um, at maybe NASA. Yeah, he could work for. Um, he could work for a private company. He could go to. He could go um, to Switzerland. Um, I wouldn't put him at Eureka. It's too inherently cracky. Yeah, I don't want. I wouldn't want to put um, Eureka in it. Um, so you could have him do NASA, you could have him do um, a private company, and then maybe have him settle down in his own personal think tank, and he could kind of like recruit all these people that he's gotten from various places. And then your final novella could be um, John Shepard showing up on his doorstep, um, asking him to come back to the SGC because they found Atlantis and they need his help. He's like, well... Would he take his whole think tank with him? I have a whole think tank. <laughs> can I take my people? And John would be like, yeah, you can take all your people, buddy. And there would be a really great moment where Rodney was like sitting down in front of Hammond, who's like the director of Homeworld Security, and say, so you sent the pretty one to pick me up. <laughs> sneaky. Sneaky. I'm not mad. <laughs> just want you to know i'm not mad <laughs> and so convenes the intergalactic brouhaha of 2004 <laughs> i i uh I think that about five years from now there'll be somebody on a fic finding group saying you know i read the story once and I'm not sure who wrote it, but there was an international brouhaha, and it was, like 15 people will like immediately respond. We know what that was. <laughs> They'll be the first people. Like I'm pretty sure that's a Kira Marco story. Yeah, I think so too. Let <laughs> me try searching for international brouhaha. I googled it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be actually. That's what we need to. I feel like I need to do a thing. Has it already hit Google? No. Although apparently, <laughs> I'm about the first person to actually use the term international brouhaha. <laughs> I put it in quotes. I put it in quotes and got 4,000 results. <laughs> There's something called the brouhaha international. <laughs> And there's Brouhaha Fest. But anyway, um, 
wouldn't it be funny in the magical world if there was like legal like like legal definitions for brouhaha, shenanigans, tomfoolery? Um, <laughs> there totally should be. There probably is. Skulldudgery. Um, okay, so um, if if your game was to just kind of like a, do a detour, a different way of coming into the SGC. Um, you could even have like a, you could even, if you're going to do something kind of episodic, you could have like a short episode where the SGC is a little bit floundering because they don't have Dr. McKay. Um, In a lot of ways, they would be floundering because um, because Carter's focus is on um, the Gaul. Um, and she spent so much time in the field that she really didn't have the time to invest in ancient technology. So by the time Atlantis happened, Rodney was the, the authority on ancient technology. Um, and considering his, uh, his abilities and his intelligence, they probably don't have another asset besides Carter to match him. And Carter's busy in the field. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, there would be a, kind of a little hole in the program um, that they couldn't fill. Right. Somebody with his level of, of expertise and um, ancient technology, which a lot of his expertise he developed um, down in the outpost, but he could get that. Well, he was given access to, at Area 51 to everything coming into it. So ancient True. technology would have been pushed in his direction because that was his, that was where he was to be so by the time he, the ancient outpost was found he already had a really good working knowledge of ancient technology because he was also the the acknowledged authority on the actual stargate right so he could have um the thing is is that losing him um probably ruined hammond's career he was probably forced to retire ouch I mean, that's just one of the ripples that would ha that that would have probably happened. Hammond would have been retired, especially if he cut the orders that tried to send McKay out of. Because I would imagine that the Canadian representative to the IOA would be pretty pissed off. Oh yeah. I mean, you look at ripples. It was Carter's idea, um, but she didn't cut the orders. Um, but Hammond did. Um, and Carter would have to admit that it was merely done because she was irritated with McKay. There was no other reason to do it. There's no reason to send an astrophysicist to Siberia to build batteries. Right. I'm sorry, Queenie. That's okay, Queenie. I laughed my ass off, too. <laughs> Jillian made it for me. I did. When I saw it, when I logged into Discord earlier today and I saw her avatar, I just about died. I was like, oh my god. And because they literally have no reason to send an astrophysicist, someone with two PhDs, literally two fucking PhDs, to Siberia to build batteries, they have no actual rational um, excuse for doing it. Because McKay was set up as, pol as political fodder for by Simmons. The SGC fell for it and then punished McKay despite the fact that he ended up helping them. And it could cost them Raddick too. Because if he worked with Raddick at Area 51, Raddick could be like, well, if they could send him to Siberia, what might they do to me in, in, in punishment? And they... Right. 
so by the time Rodney starts his think tank, I imagine he could probably easily have recruited Radic Zelenka and Miko. In fact, he did in my AU, because one of the things that Carter tells him um, is if he comes back to the SGC, that he has to bring all the people he poached with him, including Radic and Miko. And he's like, I didn't poach them. I gave them sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a big problem if they try to send Radic to Russia. I would actually think it's explicitly in his contract that they can't do that shit to him. And you could actually, that'd actually be an interesting moment is if they tell Carter, hey, Rodney left the program. Who are we going to send now? And she's like, well, I guess we'll have to send Zelenka. And, and like Jack could just kind of turn and look at her like, do you even think about these things before you say them? I mean, that that could get Rack Zelenka killed. Mm-hmm. It absolutely could. Get I don't think Hammond is. There's no way in hell Hammond would cut those orders. He wouldn't, um, but I could see Carter suggesting it. Off the cuff, yeah. Especially if she thought it would piss Rodney off. Yeah. And that's why I think Jack, because Jack, I think, well, in canon, Jack was particularly sensitive to the whole issue of Russians. So. Why didn't I know? Yes. <laughs> of course it was. Of course it was Rage Proof Rock. <laughs> Who else could it possibly have fucking been? <laughs> and the website the student puts the thing on is gaysugardaddy.com. Something for me to read later. Let me go put that in the link library. But it's called Academic and it is by Rage Proof Rock. By the way, for those listening, we did find the link for the other story. It's in the link library too. The Teen Wolf one, Teen Wolf Hannibal thing. Um, no, I think would have probably been at Area Fifty One. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember seeing him in the mountain then, so I don't think we ever saw Radic until. I imagine most of the people that you probably actually didn't exist when this part of SG One was happening. But if they did exist and they were in the program, they were probably at Area 51 and they and those were the ones that ended up at um in Antarctica because all the scientists in the mountain would be considered mission essential and they would not have been sent to um to Antarctica. Yeah, Daniel Jackson's definitely considered I would consider him I would say that he's definitely probably listed um officially as mission essential. Yeah, which means when all operations get shut down in the mountain, and you only have mission essential personnel, that he would be one of the people in the mountain that stayed. So I imagine all of SG One and most of Sam Carter's high tier scientists that worked under her were considered mission essential. But I imagine Jack that Daniel Jackson has been mission essential since Abydos, because he's the one that figured out how to go to Abydos. And so even when he was off planet on Abydos for a year, he was still considered mission essential. Yeah. So I like that. It's sort of like a detour. Rodney's Rodney's detour where he picks up a bunch of people to take to, to Atlantis with him who are all better than Kavanaugh. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very long working title, but it sort of encapsulates the idea. <laughs> like one of those it kind of reminds me like of one of those um like those small circuses like um dr mckay and the the amazing something 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 scientists yeah 
he could actually have his like little think tank, you know, like they dive into companies and they, they become like little problem solvers. They'll go to a company and solve the problem, working out their technology, raking lots of money, move on to the next company. What are we going to do here? What problem can we fix for you today? Oh, stupidity. Well, your security is shit because we've already broken into your mainframe in the parking lot with my phone. <laughs> just, just to let you know. Do you want us to start there? Yes, let's start with how bad your security is. And then let's move on to how stupid you all are. And by the way, your vice president is banging your wife. <laughs> we found that on Facebook. <laughs> we don't know how you didn't know. In the car. On Amita's phone. Because <laughs> I don't have Facebook installed. I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, that could be an interesting like little detour. It, it would be it'd be kind of like the detour verse, right? You could even call it that the detours verse. Um, Rodney's great adventures while he's trying to figure out what he's going to do next. But it does seem that there are also a lot of in Stargate Atlantis. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of AUs where like Rodney never goes to Atlantis, or Rodney and John never go to Atlantis. My favorite being a farm in Iowa, but they do eventually go to Atlantis separately. I enjoyed Fair Trade as well. Um, that's by SFE. If you read no other AU in Stargate, read read Fair Trade. Read the coffee shop AU. Uh, yeah, and that's Jilly saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like Entangled Particles as well. Where Rodney's a writer and John is uh, basically banging out the last few months of his tour of duty in Antarctica before he leaves the Air Force. And he reads Rodney's book and he comes back to the United States and he's um, he's passing by a bookshop. And there is um, the author, Rodney, getting the book signed and he, he goes in and gets the book signed and then he. He snags him a McKay. <laughs> As one does. There are several books in that, and one where he has a stalker, so mind the tags, guys. Rodney has a stalker, not John. So mind the tags. Um, that's called Entangled Particles, I believe. It's when one where Rodney is a writer, and he eventually has a stalker um, in one of the books. I'm not sure which one of them it is, but I'm pretty sure it's marked pro appropriately. And they're probably all on AO3. Well, you know, as one does, yeah, you go to the store, get some milk, some bread, a cranky scientist, put your cart where it belongs. <laughs> it's not too much to ask. We should call this haphazard adventures and other shenanigans. <laughs> a, t a tale of tomfoolery. Whose tail is tomfoolery? We named the, the this at while you were gone. We're going to call it a ha haphazard adventures and other shenanigans. A tale of tomfoolery. Oh, it's even got a subtitle. <laughs> Sometimes one must have a. You know what? When you got haphazard and shenanigans in your title, you deserve a subtitle. Yes, you do. <laughs> oh, thanks, Willow. The entangled particles is by Zenith. And Willow um, found us the link. And of course, Fair Trade is by SFE. Um, 
and it is on, um, it's already in the link library, um, but it's also on AO3. It would be really interesting to write an AU where Rodney says fuck, fuck you no to, to Siberia and goes off and lives his best life. Yeah. And when the SGC comes knocking, he doesn't give them the time of day. He's like, are there aliens in orbit about to bomb my house? Well, no. Then fuck off. Leave me alone. Fuck off. If the answer is no, I'm not interested in talking to you bitches. Don't come back to my house or to my business. Don't go near my husband. <laughs> or my cat. Unless aliens are invading the planet. Are we clear? Well, you know, look, to be to be to be real, I I will go down with the ship. So if Rodney is off living his best life, he's living his best life married to John Shepard. That's right. Because <laughs> I will go down with the ship. And Patrick's kilt, yeah. Somebody's gotta wear the kilt in their relationship. It might as well be Patrick Shepard. I think we're done with the podcast, unless you guys have any specific questions about brainstorming. I have to start a Dear Kira column. How do I end my toxic brainstorming relationship? <laughs> I think that really, really, if you go, if you don't have a goal when you go into a brainstorming situation, um, you can expect it to spiral. So even like, you know, even when you're like, when you're cloud plotting or you're just brainstorming, and you're writing down terms and ideas, you need to give yourself structure. Structure is very important. And I know that for a pantser, that's like a dirty word, but um, I have no other way to really frame this conversation um, for you. Yeah, but even if the pantser, like, let's say you go into a session where you don't know anything about the story. Like if if we ever get around to we plotted i think our podcast the night we plotted my the nano i'm working on right now i think it was close to four hours because we did two separate stories and we're going to cut off the first one because nobody needs to hear that but me um but i really didn't have an idea what i was thinking about writing but we just started poking around um but i know what kinds of things I like to write. So some ideas are just not going to appeal to me. So I have, and I have no problem saying to somebody that doesn't really work for me. So if you, if, if you're going into a brainstorm with somebody who really, you really don't know what you want to work on and you just kind of like, maybe, you know, the fandom and maybe the pairing. Although I think somebody who's a diehard pantser is going to be doing a brainstorming session. So it, it isn't going to really apply. But if you really just don't, you just don't know, um, just knowing what kind of writer you are, knowing what you like to write and being able to say no to an idea that just does not feel good to you. Because I can see potential in an idea that I would personally not write. These things are not in conflict, right? I could say, I really see potential in that. I might even want to read it, but doesn't mean I would want to write it. For me, when I go into a brainstorming session for myself or with um, with one of the bitches or, you know, if I'm just in my car and I'm, and I'm thinking about what, what I'm going to be writing, um, I ask myself, who's my main character? What are their goals? What are their motivations? Who, who and what is standing in their way? 
What themes do I want to explore? What part, if it's, if it's, if it's fandom, I, what part of, um, what fandom, like, obviously, you know, my main character has come pop up there. Um, do I have any crossover fandoms? Um, what tropes do I want to explore? Are there, are there any themes I want to avoid? And how do I avoid these themes? So when you have all these questions down and you know what you need out of the brainstorming situation, I think it would be easier to contain it. But if you don't even know what you need going into a brainstorming situation, I can see that spiraling completely out of control. I mean, if you go in and you go, I don't have any idea what I'm writing. I don't even know the fandom. I mean, the thing is, I've had brainstorming sessions like that and often don't actually wind up using the end product because it's just ultimately, um, it's not focused enough for me. And so what winds up happening is I wind up building a story or kind of plotting something, but I just don't have any connection to it. You would not believe the first story I plotted for the the rough trade where I did a Leomoto. It was completely because <laughs> I had no idea. I, all I knew was going to be Harry Potter, right? That, so that's what I went into my first brainstorming session with was just it's going to be Harry Potter. It it bears no resemblance at all to what I wound up with because I just hadn't gotten for me that that spark that lit me on fire for what I was going to write. Um. So you can actually sit down and brain from an idea and get all the way through it. Like plot the whole thing and go, hmm, no, I don't think so. I mean, there have been times when we've done like done plots or plot drifts um, for our podcast where we threw out ideas and hammered out plots where we're, like I, um, it's rare that I even think about them. The only one I've ever actually written is The Legacy. Yeah, there are a few. There are maybe a very small handful of the ones we've had that I wound up kind of attached to. But for the most part, it's just like I'll listen to an old podcast. I'll be like, huh, I completely forgot about that. And that happens more often than, than I remember them. I mean, like the yes, sir thing, the, 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 the one where John was knocking in that kind of cracky idea we had where John kept going to some. Sir? Yeah, sir. I've been reading reports. I mean, that one. That one sticks with me. The Jarvis and time travels with Thor. That one stuck with me. Um, the one where John ascends and makes all of the ancients, I mean, all the wraith little ancient babies. That one stuck with me. So there's like a very small handful that I really remember. But there's a couple of the dead air variations that I that crop up it, but it, it's not like I think about them it's um when I'm thinking about a dead air story I go didn't we talk about once a story where Gibbs shows up to check things out or didn't we talk about once where the SGC wound up taking Tim and Ziva into custody you know because I won't remember them just on their own but I'll remember them when they come up in relation to something else so yeah but there are a few that I definitely remember very very that I still think about but most of them yeah, it's just sort of out of sight, out of mind, right? But you were saying that we do a lot. We've done a lot of them, as many as we've done. You just don't remember. I mean, because they're just not. They're not anything that I plotted on my own that I was deeply invested in. That Because I've, I've never actually set up a plot drift for an idea that was like deep in my 
in my process where I'm like, okay, I need to write this idea. And because I've never done that um, for a plot drift, um, none of them really stick out in my brain as I want to write this. Um, except for the legacy, which I wrote. Yeah. Well, and we, but we've also started taking some of the ones where we really do plan to write them. We've taken them private until they're written. Right. So. But yeah, you gotta, you guys gotta have a real, it helped that you'll get more out of the brainstorm that you do with yourself or with anybody else, but particularly something you do with other people. If you know kind of what it is, if you know what lane you want to be in on, you know, yeah, on what, what, kind, what kind of story you want to tell. Right. If, cause if you don't know, all anybody else can do is kind of ask you questions and kind of try to nudge you along, but you still might not wind up very attached to the end product because it, there comes a moment when you know, I really like this idea. Whatever that moment is, um, I think the brainstorming goes better if you've had that moment before you sit down with somebody else to brainstorm. Or if you've gone, I really like this idea. I'm not really sure how to put all the moving parts together yet or what all the moving parts are or who all the characters need to be. But I really like this idea. And that moment is um, really does make a big difference to me in terms of how productive brainstorming is and sometimes i think that i just exploring the the, the ripples can totally turn me off an idea yeah that too and like nope <laughs> nope because <laughs> sometimes you don't see a ripple immediately and you get in there and you're doing your thing and you're working it on it and you know and you you encounter a ripple in your in your in your thought process and it's like that's a no for me, dog. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> or it's like it's so egregious that I never would I would never want to write it in a million years. Either the, either the idea falls apart or so there's a there's a logical consequence that is so offensive that I'm like, nope. I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, I was trying one day to work out the ramifications of something like what would the consequences be of um well actually i don't, I don't mind saying it because it, it can't be written but i was trying to work out what the consequences would be i was trying to you know figure out how the events of swack would have happened differently in the ties of mind universe right like well what if, if so if, if if it went this way what would be the repercussions of this and that and so i'm talking to kira one day trying to understand that what the consequences would be to someone who um like to, to defied an order in this kind of circumstance and we we'd gotten a little bit of a ways into this discussion and all of a sudden kira says remind me again what the situation the circumstances were around swack ah, why that what happened and why that woman was so mad and she mailed that play and i i had been so busy working out the minutia that i had missed the fact entirely that swack would never happen in the ties of mind universe because nobody would be so embarrassed about being caught tied up in a bed that they would claim they were raped rather than admit to practicing bdsm because that's the that's why yeah. i just totally <laughs> missed it right and that was the big thing right so that whole idea for this i mean I, and swack was like the pivotal event for this whole episode that i'd plotted it was swack and so i was working out the details of how all of these little moving parts would come together and then the ripple was it would never have happened 
it would never have happened. And I was like, oh shit. And as soon as, as soon as I started explaining it, I, it's like, it's coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, but why would she be embarrassed that she was caught tied up in bed and claimed she was raped? I mean, like people, people get tied up in public and ties up bind. <laughs> I made maids in the ties up bind universe have to walk in on people tied up in bed all the time. So, I mean, it's not a very safe play, but to be left alone, tied up in a way you can't get out of it. But, you know, she might get in trouble. But we also discussed the fact that if, you know, the, in that particular situation, that she probably would have had um, handcuffs on that, that were made to get out of an emergency situation. Yeah. She'd had a safety release um, in, a, in, um, in a BDSM world. Right. Um, they wouldn't have been regular handcuffs. So she would never have been stuck tied in bed anyway. So, yeah. So, but I was sitting there working at the minutia and missing... So it didn't ruin my interest in writing that Ties at Mind episode. It totally destroyed that whole plot, though. Destroyed. <laughs> gone. Kaboom. It did better to know now in the brainstorming part than to find out later um, when you're writing it that your whole idea is like, fucked. Oh. <laughs> that makes no damn sense. Of course, you could actually replot um, what happens in SWAC is it to make the mother have sent that plague envelope for a different reason right. that maybe instead of her daughter having a false rape cr um, cry out, maybe her daughter is murdered and it's, and it, and it goes unsolved. Yeah. I could, she, she could still do it. It's just, but you need a different set of circumstances behind it. Right. Then the embarrassed, embarrassed rape thing. Yeah. So, Embarrassed rape. That sounded bad. She was embarrassed because she was tied up and therefore she claimed she was raped. But here's the thing. A maid walked in on her, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So woman to woman, if you if you found a woman in that situation, you wouldn't go blabbing to other people about it. You would help this bitch out and then you would that that's sisterhood. Yeah, you just let her out. So what exactly happened there? Did she get paranoid that the maid would tell her friends that she found some lady she didn't even know the name of? I mean, it's just like... The more I think about it... Unless, I mean, unless the dude took the key with him. Maybe he didn't. We don't know that. The key could have been sitting on the bedside table. What happened to that girl? Did did uh, she was in the episode? She was the one who was admitting to Gibbs that she was never raped, but she, but she just never told her mother, and she had no idea her mother. Her mother had never been able to let it go. Well, the thing is, is she wouldn't have been embarrassed in um, a ties that bind world, and she might have filed charges against the dom for leaving her in that position. But it wouldn't have been a situation where she would have been embarrassed enough to say she was raped. Because in ties that bind, rape is a capital offense. Right. But um, in, 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 in the actual episode, the guy died. That's why she was there, right? The guy she was with died. He got hit by a car or something when he ran out to get them coffee. Again, this is a very amateurish thing. You don't leave somebody tied up when you go out to get coffee or what the fuck ever. But, um, right? But he, he, she should probably be more embarrassed that she had a shitty dom. 
right? <laughs> I was trying. To, I, I, I was, I'm sitting here trying to track some conversation in the podcast in the chat room. I just cannot track it. It says somebody says something. I remember the one where Atlantis keeps asking John for different things from Earth, and someone says food storage for the wraith is one that I will always remember. And they said the food storage for the wraith is when we said that the that they find a hive ship um, that's like on a planet somewhere, and it has babies from Satita in it, stored in it for food. Oh, that one. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that horrible one where we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. We freaked out ourselves and the chat room. I freaked myself out again. With logical consequences. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that plot drift. I probably deliberately forgot about it because that was horrible. And it was my, it, it, part of that was my ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the one where Atlantis keeps asking for stuff. I don't. I'm kind of. I don't think I've ever read that, whatever it is. I think they're saying that was one of our plot drifts. Plot drift with Atlantis asking for stuff? That's interesting. <laughs> I just don't remember it. I don't remember it at all. But, um, yeah, sometimes in a brainstorm, you will... Uh... I remember that story where Rodney was like, my shower doesn't have attachments. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> An early podcast, you mean like like in 2004 or 5? I don't even remember last week. 2004? <laughs> 15 years ago? Wow, okay. <laughs> Maybe 2014. Okay, yeah, 2014. I'm like, 15 years of podcast? We better have more than 400. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> How many do we have? We've got over 400. <laughs> Why does I think that would tell me what I wanted to know? That isn't going to tell me what I think. I... Just, um, crazy cakes. 451. 500. Well, uh, 451, yeah. But there's was there one that you could, it don't have uploaded? Um, yeah, I have one that I'm editing and one that I removed from a long time ago. Um, and then this one. So... So two more plus. Well, with the, I'm um, editing um, elementals now. Did you already do the um, the uh, sequel one? Is the art is the art of the sequel not up? Uh, nope. Huh. Vexing canon elements was the last thing you posted, and I think art of the sequel was before that. Was was before um before the elemental AU. So counting tonight, there's three more to go up. Well, plus four if you count my November plot drift, because we're basically ripe for that one. So that's four. So four fifty-five ish. I filed that episode like I processed it, and I didn't. The art of the sequel. Mm -hmm. Optimistic thinking. But speaking of well, I'm editing Elemental, so it will go up before Art of the Sequel, but they're not like connected, so it won't matter. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of uh, statistics, we've almost got 700 members of this server now. That's awesome. That's it's something. 
let's end the podcast. We can still chat, but um, we need to end the podcast because before it gets ridiculous. And um, I think we're out of topic unless you guys have any questions. And you didn't earlier, so I'm going to assume you don't now. Um, I hope that you guys have had a very productive nano and that you got what accomplished what you wished to get accomplished. And we're going to continue to overlook my ridiculous bloated word count. And um, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Jillian, <laughs> we shall catch you later. Say good night, Jillian. Good night, everyone. <laughs>